Sorry about that. Hello, I'm Eagle. Eagle Gardens. Eagle Gardens 1 on Instagram. And this is fucking talking shit with Eagle. Episode 310. Hopefully you guys have had a great Friday. I've got an amazing guest for you tonight. Sean of Yeti Farms. How you doing? You want to tell us how you're doing and where we can find you tonight? Yeah, you bet. Thanks for having me on, Eagle. Uh, my name is Sean Monica with Yeti Farms. Uh, we're located in Colorado. We're a uh, Legal cannabis from the record oh. side. Oh, I'm Eagle. Eagle. We stayed about 30 miles west of the town of Colorado. We do a large uh, outdoor cultivation extraction facility out there. Nice, nice. Uh, thank you for joining us, taking the time to hang out here. I'm just trying to get chat rolling. YouTube's got this new thing going now. Basically, it used to just start off on its own and everybody could just start you know chatting for some reason they've youtube has snuck in like this they're always sneaking things in but now they're basically making me sign for chat uh basically you know because this is my channel and i'm supposed to be responsible for content on it and what's being said they're actually kind of holding us to that now so basically Chat won't start until I sign in and or the, the owner of the channel signs in and says hello. Basically, you know, signing, hey, this is, I'm taking credit for this chat. So I had to bring that up real quick and get that going. Sorry about that. Sure, no problem. Uh, so uh, how was your day, man? Uh, you were telling me out there, man, you were enjoying the weather a little bit, man. It's a hell of a gas yeah. you got on your arm. Yeah, I'm a big backcountry guy. I enjoy the mountains a lot. Uh, I spend a lot of my time, my personal time up in the mountains and in nature. It's just how I relax as a person. And a good friend of mine, we've been running around up in the mountains for 20 years together. I drove about five and a half hours to his house last night, got here about 11. I was pretty uh, eager to go ride today. It's the first ride of the year. We just haven't had a lot of snow. So we went up to uh, the Grand Mesa outside of uh, Grand Junction, Colorado, an area we've ridden for many, many, many times. And had a decent ride today. The snow wasn't that great. We got about 200 yards from the truck, and I decided I needed just a little bit more riding and went to go shoot up a hill and got about three feet off the trail. And the best way to tell you is just sideswiped about 12 foot of rocks going, I don't know, 40 miles an hour. And uh, my, my arm got into, that was with jackets and shirts and everything else on. So, and my leg doesn't look too much better. The bike does not look good at all. So uh, <laughs> as my buddy laughs in the background. <laughs> so, um, but that's just part of it. It's I've, I've trashed more shit in the mountains than, than I can count, to be bluntly honest with you. That's why you have insurance to get the shit fixed. So we'll be back up and running in another couple of weeks and uh, back out here playing again. Well, thank you for, uh, you know, hanging out, even with the injuries, man. I know, uh, I'd be a little antsy right now, man. Fucking, that looks like a, a nice gash. It's the lake yeah, don't look much better. For some reason, man, this son of a bitch won't quit bleeding. You see that line going down my arm? That fucking hole right there has got a bunch of chunk of shit hanging out of it. It just won't quit bleeding. So we'll see how she looks in the morning. I may have to go to the hospital and get a stitch or two in that or put some super glue on it or something. That's all right. Plenty of cannabis, and uh, I, I'm, I'm not feeling any of the pain. I'm sure I'll sleep real well tonight. So you want to, we might as well get going from the start here. Uh, 
you want to tell us when when did cannabis enter your life? When uh, well, let's tell tell us a little bit about your story. You betcha. Let me. Uh, I, I totally am promoting this. If you guys want to smoke out of a Rio rig, you need to smoke out of one of these. They are the best dab rig on the world. I sell about thirty of these things a month. They're amazing. I probably got the best price anybody in the country. I'm not trying to sell you anything. I'm just selling you. This is the best ad break there is. So <clears throat> let me get this ripping and then we'll start into this hell of a story. Oh, feel free to dab whenever you see fit. I definitely encourage smoking on this show. So, <laughs> all right. So here's kind of how it all started out. Um, I found out about six years ago that my, uh, my start in the cannabis industry started with my biological father. Um, little did I know he was an international sm- uh, hash smuggler for the U.S. military. So he uh, unfortunately uh, died of suicide in 1977. They found him out in the woods in um, Suffolk, U.K. Um, but <clears throat> afterwards, as I got older, I started getting more and more stories from more and more people. And uh, one of the stories that emerged was that he was a huge international hash smuggler. He was bringing in tablets of hash from the Middle East and uh, shipping them over to the U.S. all through the early and, well, I should say mid-70s is when he did this. Um, so <laughs> it was a start maybe even before I even knew what had happened. And uh, oddly enough, after his passing, we my family packed up and moved to Indiana where I was raised. <clears throat> and um, believe it or not, my mother met a guy that was a cop. And uh, my father was a, what I call my father was a cop for 26 and a half years. So I grew up in a pretty strict household that you have to understand the uh, alcohol was legal to drink as an open container until 1989 in Indiana. So what I mean by that is you could pull up next to a cop and pour yourself a Jack Daniels and ice, rattle the ice at him, drink it and drive away. And technically he couldn't pull you over for that. But of course, cannabis was illegal. So with this, I grew up in an environment where alcohol, I wouldn't say it was celebrated, but it was certainly able to, it was socially acceptable to, to consume alcohol. And being from the Midwest, that's just a Midwest thing. You just consume alcohol. It's just the way it works. So for me, cannabis was bastardized my entire life, uh, meaning driving around the vehicle and my father pointing at someone that now I know has addiction issues or mental issues and saying, see, they're on weed. That's, that's what they're doing. That's, that's why they're like that. So I'm looking at this shit like, whoa, you know, this weed can't be good for you, but you can drink Coors on the weekend and have some Jack Daniels and that's perfectly okay and smoke 10 packs of cigarettes and that's all right. So this is something I saw for a long time in my life. And uh, like most people in my teenage years, I had some friends and they were like, hey, you want to try some weed? And I was like, sure. And to this day, Nick Kittle, I thank you and love you very much for it. We're still great friends to this day. I can tell you what the bowl looked like. I can tell you where I was sitting. I can tell you everything about it. And I do remember this. We went and watched the movie Tommy Boy afterwards. And I remember laughing during a scene I shouldn't have been laughing in. And everyone at the theater was looking at me and I thought, oh, shit, they all know I'm high. And uh, they just all knew I was laughing. So um, my experiences through high school were pretty limited with cannabis. Um, I started drinking at the age of 15 and to say I was hitting pro status by 18 is probably a little bit of an understatement. I was literally partying in colleges and going kind of over the top already at 18 years of age. 
But my experiences with cannabis had been very minimal because, again, it had been bastardized my whole life and no one really wanted that around. So I didn't want to piss anybody off. My dad was a cop. I respected what he did for a living. I didn't want to make any ripples in his pond, if you will. So I just stayed the hell away from him. Um, fast forward, go to college, had some fun roommates. Um, <laughs> we used to, uh, the, I don't want to say his name because I don't, we'll say it was a shiny, a shiny metal is what we called this guy. And um, this guy used to buy pounds from HA north to where we went to school and then bring them to our place. And we would break the pounds down into eights and he'd let us smoke while we were doing it and all we wanted to. So that was kind of like my reintroduction into cannabis. We were breaking pounds down that were grown by HA in Northern Indiana. So uh, in 1999, I was, now I can say I was, I was a full blown alcoholic at 22 years of age. I I didn't know it then, but I I know it now. I could consume alcohol at a rate that would blow people's mind. I would drink 14 double Tanqueray and tonics and drive home. Like it was, it was insane how much I was consuming with alcohol and college wasn't working for me. <clears throat> I was failing out. Um, and I had three jobs the whole time in college. So I worked very, very, very hard. And let me back that up a little bit too. A lot, a lot of people ask me, constantly ask me, Eagle, hey, you know, what's it take to be successful? You know, what's the key to all this? And honestly, it's just work. It's just work. It's tenacity and never stopping when everyone says to stop. It, it Well, you have to have common sense, of course. But let me just give you an example. Like, I started working my first tax return I had when I was 11 years old and I've had a tax return every single year since. Um, I had a full-time job when I was 16 years old. By the time I was 18, I had two full-time jobs and was going to school full-time. I just looked at life a little bit different. Um, We grew up in central Indiana, extremely poor. Uh, We didn't have shit. We were just a step above poor white trash, just to be totally honest with you. Uh, my father was the breadwinner in the home. Typical, my mother stayed home. Uh, you know, everyone smoked cigarettes. The house was, I wouldn't say falling apart, but we were doing our best to keep things going. I never really even knew we were poor. Uh, I just knew that when I went to school, I went to a different line to get my lunch. Uh, I knew we got my shoes at Payless. I knew I wore my brother's underwear when he ran out from his size. I just, I, I just thought that's what everybody did until fifth grade. I remember this very distinctly in fifth grade. That's when Air Jordans came out. Those shoes, the very first ones that ever came out, Air Jordans. I remember a kid getting a a pair of Air Jordans, and we were all amazed by them because, you know, we thought we played better basketball with them and jump higher in the whole nine yards. And uh, I remember him saying, I said, how much those things cost? And he's like, they're a hundred bucks, man. They cost a hundred bucks. He's like, you need to ask your dad to get you a pair of these. I said, holy shit, are you kidding me? I said, seriously, if I ask my old man that, like, he's going to beat the shit out of me for that. And he's like, what are you talking about? I was like, man, that's like a week of groceries for our house, bro. We can't afford a hundred bucks. Well, shit, in three or four or five weeks, everybody in school had them. And I realized, Jesus Christ, my tennis shoes were 15 bucks. And that was like a stretch to buy those things. So it started something. Um, I wasn't really humiliated. I, would, I wouldn't say that. I wasn't embarrassed. I just didn't fucking like it. That, that's it. I, I just didn't fucking like being poor. And so I started at a really early age and I thought if I can just work really, really, really hard, I can make money because everybody around me that I saw was wealthy worked hard. Remember, I grew up in a farming community in the middle of Indiana, middle of nowhere. So hard work was like that guy can throw bales of hay all day long and then go combine corn, you know, whatever. They always had two or three jobs. These guys just worked. They worked hard, but they have money. 
They always have money. Their kids had new pickups. Their kids had new clothes. So I started to try to emulate these people and try to work with them, for them, and try to emulate. And what started to happen is I started to notice that some of these farmers out there were just farming land. All they were doing was putting a disc in the ground. They were putting a seed in the ground. They were harvesting that seed and selling it. And other farmers were running a business. And so I started to listen to those farmers talk. And I didn't even know what the fucking words they were talking about. I had no clue what, what they meant. So in those days, there was no internet. Your ass went to a dictionary or glossary and you looked up words like interest rates, uh, interest only loans, uh, CRP payments, these things. I didn't know what they were. So I went and looked them up and I was like, wait a minute. These guys are running business business. They're not just out here growing and harvesting corn and beans. They're doing business. Well, the guy I'm talking about in particular has made himself a billionaire now with his company. And this is just over my lifetime. I used to detassel corn for him when I was nine and 10 years old. And it's amazing what he's done. So I started to see these people differently and it made me look at things differently. Uh, when I was in junior high, eighth grade, I was already making custom furniture for every teacher and superintendent and everybody I could in our school system. I'm not talking about something like a bullshit frame on the wall. I'm talking like full on custom furniture for these people and charging them in 1989, 1990, charging these people literally four or five, $600 for this stuff. I had a knack. I could do something and people wanted it. So it taught me like, if you can learn to do something, people will pay you more than you ever thought you could make. That never stopped. It just never stopped. So in high school, all through high school, I had a job. I was shitty in school. I was a terrible student. I graduated high school with a 1.86 grade average. I just didn't care, to be totally honest. I didn't give a shit. I just needed to get out and get my diploma so I was happy and then to go on to my next phase in life. Well, college was no different to catch back up to that point. I was still broke. I was still working three jobs. I was trying to pay everything. I didn't want any debt. I came out with zero debt, but I also came out with no degree. So as I'm sitting there in college, busting my ass, I'm on my third year of school. I work at A.G. Edwards Stock Brokerage Firm as an intern. And I worked there five days a week for four hours a day for free for four years. Uh, It was one of the most valuable things I ever did for myself. I learned a lot about people and money working there. I used to literally analyze uh, business portfolios for potential mutual fund investments It was something you would never think an 18, 19 year old person would be doing, but they taught me how to do it. And so I'm looking at numbers and books that have several zeros behind these and I'm finding things that don't look right and showing these to people and they're applauding me on the back and telling me I'm doing a great job. So this motivated me like I I can really step out of my comfort zones and do things that I just never thought I could do. Now, please understand this whole time. I am fucking hammering booze, man. Like, I am drinking like a college pro. Like I literally was setting records on my campus for bonging beers and shit. Like it was just out of control, <clears throat> but I was fun. I was never violent drunk. I always buying everybody drinks. I was, I was a good time. So I decided in the year 1999, uh, in January of that year, I decided I was dropping out of college. I'm like, I'm done with this shit. I'm tired of paying the bills. I'm tired of roommates. I'm tired of doing all this bullshit. I don't like this. I'm not learning. And I made a really bold move. Um, I'm working at a bank in college. Uh, Like I said, I had three jobs. I worked at a restaurant. I worked at a bank. And I had AG Ever Stock Brokerage Firm. And I'm working at this bank. And I I tell my boss, I'm like, I think I want to move to Colorado. She's like, no shit. What are you going to do? I said, I think I I can get a job at a bank. And those days, again, remember, internet was like 
$5 a minute and it just, it took forever. It was on your phone line. So I just hit the old 411. They said, where? I said, Boulder, Colorado. And I called, they put me through and I said, I just need the local newspaper, whatever the local newspaper is. It happened to be the Boulder Daily Camera. They gave me the phone number. I called. This is when long distance phone calls cost more money. People, it was a whole different world in those days. And I remember asking the bank if I could use the phone that I worked at. And they're like, yeah, yeah, go ahead. She was very supportive of it. And I called, uh, I, I got this newspaper and they sent it to me. I had like three days later, I was so happy. And boom, right there was a bank job in Denver. And I was like, oh shit. So I called and I arranged on spring break of 1999 to drive from Indiana to Denver. And the way I did that is I left Indiana. I actually drove to Tennessee to my folks place and then drove to Macon, Georgia. I went pig hunting for three days, shot a couple pigs. I'm a big avid hunter. And went back to Tennessee, dropped the pigs off, picked my girlfriend up that was hanging out with my mom and drove all the way to Denver, Colorado, straight through. Didn't stop. Got a hotel. Next morning, had an interview with Bank One Financial. And I walked in, sat down with this lady. And her name started with a J. I just called her Jean, but it could be wrong with Jean. And uh, 45 minutes later, I stood up from the interview and I said, I appreciate your time. Thank you so much for having me here. But um, I need to let you know. The next job interview I'm going to has already told me I have the job. I prefer to work here. So you have about 35 minutes, 45 minutes to call my hotel room and let me know. And then my girlfriend will page me and let me know. And she's like, oh, uh, well, well oh, oh, okay. And I was like, thank you very much. Now, mind you, I have no degree. I've worked at a bank in college and I have a lot of work experience and I can talk very well. I'm good at sales, but I have no degree. And 45 minutes later, I get to my hotel because there was no second interview. There was no second opportunity. This was the only shot I had. And 45 minutes later, I get to my hotel and I walk in and my girlfriend's like, the, the light's beeping on the phone. There's a message for you. I'm like, oh shit, I pick it up. And here was Jean from Bank One. She said, Sean, we'd like to offer you a full-time position. As soon as you're available to get out here and move from Indiana, we'd love to hire you. I'm like, holy shit, I'm doing this. So I went home, broke my lease. Um, I had a really cool uh, landlord. I mowed all of his properties in the college town to help pay for part of my rent. So uh, he asked what I was doing. He was a little upset. He was a local vet, very successful. <clears throat> he was a little upset I wasn't going to finish my college degree. And I explained to him it was not important to me any longer to have that piece of paper. Success comes in a lot of forms. And he gave me his blessing and said, you can break your lease with me. You don't owe me a penny. Um, thank you so much. And me and my wife wish you the best. I was like, holy shit. You know, it's like somebody encouraging me and pushing me. That's really good. I like that. Because at this point, I don't have a relationship with much of my family at this point in my life. It's just kind of me doing my lone wolf thing. So it was kind of nice to have this person as a mentor telling me, like, you do it. You go, go do it. Fuck it. What's the worst you're going to do? Come back to Indiana? Well, that wasn't going to happen. And so I packed my shit, took me two trips to get back and forth. The energy I had in those days, Eagle, Jesus Christ, I could drive from Indiana to Denver, turn right back around, drive back to Indiana, sleep for like eight hours and drive back to Denver. And it was just no big deal. I'd be sleeping in a hotel for three days now if I did that. But neither here nor there. Um, I got moved out to Colorado and started working for Bank One Financial and uh, working there, learned quite a bit. But I had to wear a three piece suit every day. And although I think I probably look sharp in it. Uh, that was about the extent of it for novelty for me. I just couldn't fucking do it anymore. I, I, it, it went against every thread in my goddamn body. So I walked into my amazing boss one day. I think I'd made it nine months. And I just said, Lisa, I can't do this. I'm done. She offered me another job, offered me different ways to work, everything. And I just said, I've made my decision. And thank you very much. So uh, I went into outside sales <clears throat> and 
I'm telling all this because it all has to do with the lead up to, to where we're getting to here. And I'm not smoking very much cannabis at this point. Like in my first nine months in Denver, I didn't smoke any cannabis at all. I was this banker. I wanted to have this new clean lifestyle. I gave up all the shit, but I was still drinking. So um, I got into outside sales and I fucking crushed it. I mean, fucking crushed it. I was lead sales in my division. My first year there, I made over a hundred grand. Uh, I'm 23 years old. Uh, during, own, during working at the bank, I made a smart move and bought my first house at 22 years old. If anybody's listening, buy a house. I don't care how old you are, just buy the house. If it wasn't for that house, I wouldn't be sitting here telling you this story and we'll get to that. So I bought this house. It was me and my Basset Hound. Mr. Jakers was his name, uh, living in the house in Denver and drinking whiskey and beer and smoking a little bit of weed here and there and having some fun. And I'm doing this outside sales thing. I did it for about two years, did pretty good at it. And uh, I just couldn't stand being micromanaged anymore by the company. And it's just not me. I'll, I'll sell the most of anything. Just leave me alone. Let me do it. Um, so I just couldn't do it. And this is awesome. I did this like Jerry Maguire fashion. I forgot about this. I just remembered. So I hadn't really been into work. I'd just been out doing sales for like five or six days. And my manager calls me and she's like, are you going to be coming to the office this week? I said, no, I'm not coming in. I don't have the need to be there. She said, well, I'd really like to have a meeting with you. And I said, you know, I'm just sick of all these fucking meetings. Like, I'm, what good? Like, what good's this shit? I'm your top sale, like salesman. What, what, what do you need me to do? Like in the division I was, I'm like, what do you want me to do? She's like, I just want to know what your schedule is and where you're going and things. I was like, no, nah, I just, I just can't do that. And she's, she says, well, can you come in today? We can talk. I said, fine, fuck it. So I went in today. I sat and talked to her and she just placated me and gave me some bullshit. And I go sit down in my division and one of my good buddies walks up to me and goes, Hey man, did they set a meeting up for you tomorrow morning to be here at nine o'clock to talk to the owner and your manager? I said, yeah, yeah. Why? He goes, they're going to fire you. I said, Oh no shit. Really? And I said, okay. Well, watch this. So I walked straight up to the owner's office. His name was Gary. I knocked on his door. I said, hey, Gary, you got a minute? He says, uh, what can I help you with, Sean? I said, hey, just quick question. I said, tomorrow we got this meeting in the morning at nine o'clock in the morning with you and my boss. And I'm just wondering, I heard a rumor you guys going to fire me during this. And he, I can see right there. He takes a big gulp. And his vein pops out his neck. So I, I know he's fixing to either lie to me or, or try to push it off. He said, Sean, I'm not prepared to have this discussion now. Tomorrow morning at nine o'clock, I'll be ready to have this meeting. You should be. He was being very professional. But remember, I'm like 23 years old, man. I am pretty full of myself. And I've probably already been drinking, to be honest with you. So <clears throat> I just walk into his office. I'm having this conversation. and He just won't give me an answer. And I said, hey, Gary, one time in your life, why don't you take them pink fucking panties off? They're squeezing your balls so hard and be a fucking man and answer my question. And he goes, you're fired. I said, cool. I'm not going to be here tomorrow morning. Uh, you can just send me my last check. I got a bunch of drinking and drugs to do for the next month. We'll see you. I took off and I left and I did exactly what I said I was going to do. And went and had a great time. I did. I had a lot of fun, caught up with people I hadn't seen for a while and uh, went back to manual labor. I literally was pushing a fucking broom a month later, bro. Went from making a hundred grand plus to pushing a fucking broom. And uh, I couldn't have been happier. I was so fucking happy to have a blister in the middle of my palm. I love pushing the broom again. I was happy to be working again. I, my whole life, I've been doing manual labor, cooking, service work, that kind of thing. And I was happy. I was comfortable there. So uh, about three months later, I'm running this entire construction company uh, right, below, right below the two owners. I literally went from pushing the floor to running the whole company 90 days later. And 
they, I went to my boss and said, I gotta get the fuck out of here. I'm moving the mountains. He's like, can't fight you on that one, man. Good call. I said, I just hate the city. It's wore me down. It's stealing my energy. I'm only happy when I go snowmobiling and hiking and shit. And I, I just don't want to be here anymore. And so I still own my house. I bought in Denver. I just rented it. I said, fuck it. Rented it. I met this girl in Denver and she's like, let's move. Let's do this shit. So we moved out to a little town of Rifle, Colorado and a great little town. She bought a three-story house. Uh, I remodeled the whole damn thing from the bottom floor all the way to the top. The whole goddamn thing got remodeled in my spare time I had in those days. But uh, what I did is I moved out there, went to work for a friend of mine that we used to do a lot of jeeping together. So I'm also really big into off-roading. Um, that used to be a really big thing for me. I've built, I seriously have lost count of how many vehicles I've built in my lifetime um, for myself and many other people. It's something I like. It's a art craft, if you will. I just enjoy manipulating metal and calculating suspensions. And then when I run out of talent or smarts, I call my friends that are all smarter and more talented than me and they can fill the void. So, um, <clears throat> at a four wheel drive buddy of mine hired me to come out and what he did is he put in uh, marble tile and granite all up and down, uh, the Valley. What I mean from the Valley is Glenwood Springs to Aspen. It's a very prominent valley. There's, there's a shitload of money out there. And so uh, I'd never done that. Except for work. I was like, fuck it, let's give it a whirl. So I went to work for him and I was doing crazy shit, Eagle. One of the cool stories, there's this uh, reservoir called Rudai Reservoir. It's up outside of a little town called Carbondale, kind of halfway up the valley from there. And it was this beautiful little reservoir. Well, it's pretty popular. It's for like wealthy people to live up there. Uh, one of there's a race car driver, I'm pretty sure his name's Dick Trickle. Uh, that's his cars used to always be sitting outside there. We used to laugh about that name all the time. But, in, but anyhow, um, I always I always get it wrong. It's uh, it's not Phil Collins. It's uh, Neil Diamond. That's who it is. I'm sorry. Neil Diamond has a house up there. And I built a Japanese soap tub for Neil Diamond in his house. If you don't know what it is, you use five quarter slate. You can use no mortar uh, and it has to fit together so tight that the weight holds the joints together. So I was doing cool shit like that, man. Like I was putting like literally granite edges on infinity pools up in Aspen and meeting attorneys that were like literally top in the world for what they do. Their rates are <clears throat> thousands and like $20,000 an hour. It was nuts. It was crazy. These people I was meeting, then all of a sudden a paycheck bounced. And so I went to my boss and I was like, Hey bro, you got to make this right. All this shit that bounced out, you got to make right. And I said, plus <clears throat> if this happens again, I'm done. And then he's like, it won't happen again. I'm really, really sorry. Fuck a month later it happened again. So I quit and uh, I got paid. He made it right, but I quit. So I needed to make money pretty quick. And I decided I got, I know what I can do. I can do sales. I'm good at sales. There's a car dealership, a Chevy dealership in Glenwood Springs, Colorado. And uh, I walked in the door, said, Hey, I'm looking for a sales job. <clears throat> they said, sure, we'll give you a sales job. I started on the 17th of the month and I almost made sales month month that month. But next month and the preceding six months after, I was sales month month every single month. I sold more cars than anybody there. I was smashing their records for them. Everything was going great. I was making money. They were making money. And uh, I did one transaction for a family on this silly-ass Warner Brothers edition Chevy minivan. And uh, when I saw what the total gross profit was on that, uh, I lost all my enthusiasm to sell cars. Basically, we just bent these people over the fucking barrel and hammered them. And uh, they were good people and they didn't deserve that. So I just, I literally just couldn't fucking sell cars anymore. I just lost my mojo. I was done with it. So <clears throat> I went to work in the service division. I like working on cars. I knew a lot about it. So I was like, all right, I'll try the service division now. And a buddy of mine was selling Fords. He calls me up one day over at the service department. He says, you ain't going to fucking believe this, man. 
Some guy just walked in here and spent $149,000 and bought two fully outfitted F-350s and put every option onto them he can put onto them. I said, no shit, that doesn't happen very often. He goes, no, 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 here's the kicker. He wrote a check. I said, somebody just wrote you a $150,000 check for two trucks? Who was it? He says, this guy, Kenny Smith. I said, who the fuck's Kenny Smith? He goes, he's just a oil field guy. Oil field, huh? Like you talking about like roughneck shit? And he's like, yeah, yeah, just like that. I said, give me his phone number. So again, I'm pretty bold, man. I'm like 24 years old at this point in life. I ain't got a fucking thing to lose, you know? So uh, I get this guy on the phone. I call him up. I'm like, hey, bro, uh, heard you writing $150,000 checks for trucks. He's like, who the fuck are you? <clears throat> I said, I'm the guy that wants to know how you wrote $150,000 truck to check for trucks. He just smiled and laughed. I could see him smiling through the phone, man. He just laughed and he goes, you got a pen? I said, yeah. He said, here's my address. Why don't you meet me in about two hours? I drove right to his house and uh, walked in. There's Kenny Smith. I'm almost 6'5", and Kenny Smith's about 5'6". So I got like a foot on this dude. And uh, he looks up at me and whatever, tall drink of water or something. And he says, what do you want to do? What are you, what are you looking to do? I said, I'm looking to get to a point in my life where I can write a fucking check for $150,000 for two checks or for two trucks and still have a house like this, like you got, that I'm assuming is paid for. He said, yes, it is. I said, that's what I'm looking for. And he goes, all right, I'll start you at 14 bucks an hour. I said, sign me up. Let's go. So I went to work for Kenny Smith for precision air drilling uh, for about a year. I was an air jammer. That was what my, what my role was. So I would work 12 hours running air compressors uh, and boosters that would push air down into the hole. I knew not a fucking thing about the wolf. I knew nothing about it. <clears throat> but I did know this. Every son of a bitch that worked out there, whether they're working for our company or other company, and this doesn't mean everybody knows this means where I was working. They were all smoking meth, shooting shit in their arms, drinking while they're working. And I'm like, I just, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do this. I need this money. I need this fucking job. I got bills to pay. I'm not going to fuck this off. So I didn't even drink on my 12 hour tower off. What I actually did was start going up on the rig floor and learn how to drill and how to work on a rig floor because I wanted to know how to do it. I did it for free. I didn't even get paid to do it. I just wanted to know how to do it. Well, Kenny Smith's father-in-law was one of my bosses. And you got to understand, guys, like <laughs> when I went to the oil field, my first job, real job, I had a training job. My first real job was in, a, it was in uh, New Mexico down the Navajo Indian Reservation. When I tell you I was 100 miles from a light switch that flipped to power grid. I mean, I was a hundred miles of roads that twisted and went through all hell. It was brutal to get in and out of this place. So I often just slept in my truck out by the rig. I wouldn't, I, I didn't go in and get a hotel or anything, but what they would provide you, this company, they provide you a sleeping quarters. Well, this sleeping quarters was an old Airstream trailer. It had no windows in it, no air conditioning, no running water, no plumbing, no way of heating or cooking any sort of food. And the mattress looked like a goddamn civil war bandage. So they walked me back and they're like, this is your room. This is where you're going to sleep. And I was like, nope, fuck this. I'll sleep in my truck. So this is how it starts. Like, this is my introduction to the oil field. I got all these guys smoking donks and, you know, drinking whiskey and shit. It's, it's just wild. It was back in the wild days. And um, so the father-in-law had been watching me for about six months. Because what I would do is I, I would do a three-week tower on. So I was gone from the house for three weeks. And I'd come home for a week. A lot of guys do two on, two off. I wanted that money. So I just stayed for three and then went home for one. And I was about ready to take off on a week off. And uh, he, he called me in and sits me down. The, the father-in-law, he sits me down. He 
his name's escaping me. It'll, it'll run by my head in a minute. And he sits me down and he says, hey, uh, Sean, what the fuck are you doing out here? Just like that. Just like, what the fuck are you doing out here? I was like, oh, no. I said, uh, I'm just trying to make a living, sir. I'm just got trying to pay my bills and just trying to learn and just make a living. And he goes, yeah, yeah, I see that. Well, why aren't you over there with them boys fucking around with all them drugs and drinking and shit? And I said, no, sir. I said, I don't even drink on my 12-hour off. I said, I, I only drink when I go home. I, I can't fuck this off. I need this job. I said, I hope I haven't disappointed you in any way or... I was trying to be apologetic. Like I needed that fucking job. You go like, I need it. Right. I got bills to pay. I got rent in the month and I don't fuck off my bills. So, uh, he's like, no, 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 sit down for a second. And I'm like, Oh shit. Just take your boots off. Well, once you say, once a boss tells you to take your boots off, that's like somebody hand you a free drink in the oil field. Take your boots off means you're going to get to sit down in a warm area. that's nice. that's comfortable. And they're going to like give you something nice to drink or something. So he's like, take your boots off. And I'm like, oh, fuck, this is positive. So we sit down. He, he just starts explaining how he's been watching me and how I don't do what everybody else does. And I, my paperwork is tight as fuck. And like everything's perfect all the time. And he says, man, you, you can do everything you can do to run your own company. I said, oh, fuck, man. I said, I have always run around my own company. It's, I mean, when I was nine years old, I was mowing lawns. Like I contracted three lawns in town. I learned a valuable lesson, too, on that. <laughs> nine years old and I come home to my father and I, and I said, Hey dad, I uh, can be real happy. I got Noble Ross's trailer park and I got the Mo- O'Mahony's lawn. I said, between the two of them, it's going to pay me $70 a week. These are huge fucking lawns guys. This took like eight hours to do. I, I, I said, pay me $70 a week to mow. <clears throat> he says, well, that sounds real good. That sounds nice. He says, uh, what, what are you going to mow them with? So well, the same mower I mow your yard with your mower and your weed whacker and shit. He goes, oh, okay, cool. Well, I'll take half that money. I was like, what? He's like, I'll take half that money because that's my equipment you're using. So if you're going to start a business, that's what it takes. Equipment ain't fucking free. I was like, oh, shit. Now, what he should have done, better business advice was save your money, go buy your own lawnmower. But my father didn't do that. He just took literally half the fucking money all summer. That's, that's fine. It, it is what it is. I'm not, I don't piss about it often. But fast forward, now I'm sitting in Dave's trailer and he's like, have you ever wanted to own your own business? I said, man, I'm forever, 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 ever. He goes, you can do this in the oil field. You can do your own thing. I said, fuck this equipment you guys have on just on this site. It's like 600 grand. I don't have that kind of fucking money. He says, yeah, but there's a lot of things to do. that You can start a lot less money. I said, yeah, like what? He literally points out on, on the site, on the pad right there. And there's a water truck pulling up. He goes, fuck, I don't know. I'd go talk to that guy. <laughs> I said, okay. So I trotted my happy ass out there and walked up to this dude, this Native American fella. Uh, Chuck was his name. I do remember that. I can see it on his shirt right now. I said, Chuck, right? And he says, yeah. I said, I've been seeing you bring water out here to the rig. I got some questions for you about this truck. And he's like, yeah. And I proceeded to hammer this poor dude. What's the fuel economy? What do these tires cost? You know, how much do you bill out an hour? How much can you, da, 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 da. I hammered him with every single, I mean, I literally was writing this down on a piece of paper. I went running, Dave, that was his name. The father-in-law was Dave. I went running back to Dave's trailer and I went busting in, ripped my boots off and sat down. I started running some numbers and I look at Dave and I said, oh, fuck, there's some money in these trucks. He said, see, there you go. And he says, go enjoy your, your week off, Sean, but don't sit on this, okay? I said, yes, sir. And Eagle, this is the part, it's like a fucking epiphany. So, I'm driving home and this is probably a six hour drive, seven hour drive to get home from where I was. I'm driving home and I get back to my hometown, Rifle, Colorado. 
And as I'm driving about 30 miles away, I see this fucking vacuum truck, this water truck. I was like, what the fuck? I've never seen one of those out here before. So I write the name down. And as I pull into my little town of rifle, I see another one with another name on it. So I write them down. One was Toby's Vacuum Truck Service. And the other one was TD Productions. So I went and met TD Productions first. That was Terry Dick. And I'm 25 years old at this point, guys. And I went and meet Terry. Terry's about 5'4 and is mean as a Tasmanian devil. You, you just don't want to fuck with Terry. I'll just leave it at that. Great man. You just don't want to fuck with him. I walk in this restaurant and his whole goddamn bottom jaw is wired shut. I mean, wired shut. And I look at him and I go, holy shit, what happened? And he mumbles and writes down eventually that last night he got drunk and flipped his truck end over end, bumper to bumper, not rolled it, flipped it end to end and spent all night in the hospital, but didn't want to miss the meeting. I was like, holy shit, man, these guys are hardcore out here doing this shit. So he's, he's sipping soup and I'm like, you know, I'm just puking out who I am, what I've done, what the truck, and I start bringing up the trucks. And he says, oh, all right, so you're here talking about trucks. I said, yes, sir, I'm here to talk about trucks. And he says, okay. He says, I'll tell you what, I'll make this real easy because I, I know where you're going to. I said, yes, sir. He says, you go buy a truck and I'll give you all the hours you can possibly work for 55 bucks an hour. And I was like, what the fuck? This was in 2003. And I was like, what the fuck? Like, really? And he's like, yeah, just buy the truck and I'll put you to work. I said, how much money are you making? He said, I'll be making $10 for every hour you work. I'll be making 65. I'll give you 55. I said, all right, that sounds good. That sounds good. Now remember, I'm still drinking at home, still drinking heavy, right? Like I'm, I'm drinking hard now because I'm not working for my buddy Dave. Uh, I just, I'm still working for Dave, but now I've come home on my seven days off. So I'm going to get shit faced this seven days, right? Well, I call this Toby guy, Toby's vacuum truck service. I said, Toby, I want to come down and interview with you for a job. All right, cool. So I show up I'm 10 minutes early and out walks out of the shop, this man in Liberty bib overalls, new balance tennis shoes. He's about, how tall is Toby? Six, five. Yeah. He's every bit of six, five. Anyways, 400 fucking pounds. This man is a goddamn grizzly bear. And he walks out in his deep ass voice and goes, uh, you must be Sean. I go, you're Toby. He said, yes, I am. He goes, so we, we didn't even go inside. We're standing outside. He goes, you ever driven a semi? I said, no, sir. I've driven a split rear end grain truck. He goes, fuck it. That's good enough. You start Monday. And I was like, how much an hour? And he's like, Start you at 12 bucks an hour. I was like, fuck, that's, that's like, I'm making 14 at this other job. He goes, do you want this job or not? And I said, yes, sir, I do. I do. So I went to work on December 15th of 2003. I went to work for him. Day after my birthday. I was hungover like a motherfucker. So um, I go in and I can't, I don't know how to drive a semi. So he's like, we'll train you. Then you go get your CDL through us. And then you go drive for me. It took me about three or four days to figure it all out. I read the manual. A week later, I had my CDL. I'm driving my own semi. They gave me the biggest piece of shit in the entire fleet. It's called White Horse. And this thing was a hunk of fucking shit. The heater never worked on the damn thing. It was fucking 
piece of shit. I was constantly working on it, trying to keep it moving. But yeah, understand this is a oil field. You start bitching, it's they don't, no one gives a fuck. No one cares what you have to say. They just don't care. It's just that easy. So I just shut my fucking mouth, start driving the truck, and uh, fast forward, come up uh, March sixteenth of two thousand and four. I walk into Toby's office, and I've been crushing it for this guy. I've been working fucking literally 40 hours straight for this guy going home and sleeping for eight or 10 and coming back and working again at making 12 and 13 fucking dollars an hour. Right. Trying to learn everything. I'm trying to meet every company, man, the guys that run these rigs, we're servicing like 17 rigs at this point. Like I'm trying to do everything I can. Right. Decided Terry Dick wasn't going to work for me with that drinking thing. It was too close to home with the drinking. I didn't want to start drinking with the boss and getting all fucked up. So I decided to go to work for Toby. I walked in his office on about March 15th. 2004. And I said, Hey, Toby, uh, I need to be totally honest with you about something. I said, I was not totally forthright with what I, when I met you, or what my intentions were here. And he said, all right, well, what do you mean? And I said, um, I'm going to buy a water truck and uh, I'm going to go to work out here in this oil field. And I said, you can either work with me or we can work against each other. Whatever you'd like to do is fine with me. And he said, give me two weeks. Give me two weeks to think about it. And I was like, can we do a week? He said, no, I need two. I got home and talked to the wife because it was him and his wife's company. And his daughter worked there too. And so he wanted to talk to her. And he'd never done this. He had never brought on a leaser is what it's called. He'd never done this in existence of his company. And uh, so two weeks later, to the minute, I walked in his office. I shut the door behind me. I sat down and I said, well, what do you think? And he goes, I think we can do something. We worked out a payment program, which is the same thing that Terry had offered me, 55, 65 deal. And uh, I said, cool. And he goes, hey, b- before you get going here, Hot Rod, he says, uh, you owe me $54,695. And I looked at him with the strangest look in my face because that's the exact price of the water truck I had just ordered that I was buying. And I looked at him and I said, no, sir. I don't owe you any money. I've borrowed nothing from you. I've signed no piece of paper. I owe you nothing. He said, yeah, you do. Your water truck is going to be here in about five days. I bought it. And I said, no, 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 sir. No, 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 no. Nope. I said, uh, I, my loan's almost completed with the finance, with the company selling it to me. Uh, I, if, if you've paid it, you're going to get a check and back immediately from me. He goes, how much money do you have right now? And I said, all right. I said, I have $25,000 in my savings account. I sold my fucking house to start this company. Sold my house in Denver. I sold it. There was like 30, I got walked with 37,000 in total equity. And I paid, paid, excuse me, paid off like my truck. And uh, I think I had a little credit card of a couple thousand bucks. I paid it off. Anyhow, I was down to 25 grand. I protected that money, that money, like a fucking mother badger, her babies. Like there was nothing going to touch that money. It was my money to get my nuts started. I've been saving it and it wasn't going to go anywhere. So I said, I got, yes, sorry, I got $25,000. And he said, Sean, you're going to burn that $25,000 in the first six weeks. It's going to be gone. I said, I don't know. Not on my calculations. He said, I don't give a fuck what your paper says. Listen to me. I own a hundred of these trucks. Listen to me. It's going to be gone. Take what I've given you and pay me back as you can pay me back. I said, I don't really have a choice, do I? He said, no, you don't. And I said, all right, fine. I appreciate that generosity. Again, I come from a family. This shit never happened. I'd never been around something where someone was going to help me like that. You know, it was very foreign to me to have someone help me. So I said, all right, fine. No problem. And I remember giving him this look like, 
you think you got me, don't you? Not like power over me or nothing. Like, but I'm like, again, this whole loan thing, I'm like, you know, you, you think you got me. Like, you think you, okay, fine, watch this. So he puts me to work. And I used to work 41 to 42 hours straight. I'd drive my truck. Then I'd go home. And then I would drink a full liter of bourbon. And I would do my bookkeeping. I would go to sleep. And eight hours after I had punched out, I was back in that truck driving again. So you can't process a liter of bourbon in eight hours. So I would say the majority of those that first year, maybe, maybe a year and a half, I'd probably drive my truck drunk, to be just bluntly honest with you. But all this was off-road driving. You got to understand. Let me get into the details of that for a moment. This This ain't pavement pounding. This ain't fucking, oh, it snowed. Oh, ice road truckers. That's pussy shit. And I'll tell any one of them to their face, that's pussy shit. You come out and drove where I drove. And I'll take that ice road trucker shit with a Hawaiian shirt on, with a Mai Tai in my hand, with a duber hanging out my lip, no clutch in the truck, and still get the son of a bitch there. Where we used to drive, there was this one corner. If you didn't drift the bobtail truck, which is a straight semi with no trailer, just a tank on the back. If you didn't drift it in the winter months to go around, your front passenger tire was hanging off a 400-foot cliff. Which means if your brakes let go, if you slip off that fucking clutch, if anything goes wrong, that truck and you's going over that goddamn cliff. And we sent drivers up there 12 times a day. It happened every damn day. This was just normal. This was not, it didn't matter how much it snowed. It didn't matter what day it was. It didn't matter what time it was. It didn't matter if it was your birthday. It didn't matter if it was your wife's birthday. It didn't matter if your kid was going to fucking soccer. It didn't matter if fucking St. Nick was on top of your house, slapping a reindeer's fucking ass, throwing shit down your chimney. When there's water and mud to be moved, it gets moved. And if you don't, someone else gets the contract. So that was my life for four years. By the way, that $54,695 that Toby was so fucking graciously to give me, he was right. Six weeks in, I hired my first employee, his very first shift, the motherfucker backed the truck completely into a goddamn, let me put it this way, the front bumper was eight feet off the fucking ground, if that gives you an answer, okay? The rear bumper, you couldn't even see. Ripped the frame in two, tore the frame in fucking two in the truck. I'll have you know, 31 hours fucking later, I had that truck backing out of the shop and I had the frame completely tore down, completely repaired, and we were back out making money. But five weeks after I took that loan from Toby, he was paid in full. In full. Every dime I made, I gave to him. I didn't, every penny I made, I gave to him. And I said, there, it's paid. Now we have no more debt between us, we're good. Took about four months, three months. And I bought two more trucks and I was working out of Toby's shop at the time. So I was repairing my trucks at night when he wasn't in his shop. I had to pay a booth rent and shit like that, but I could use his tools and I had my own parts account and shit like that. <clears throat> well, it got to where we were getting too big. I was starting to really get too big for him. So I made a really bold move at uh, 26 years of age. I went down and bid off a $3 million construction project in a little tiny town, Debec, Colorado. And I took a piece of land, it was 11 acres, and I annexed it into town, subdivided into five parcels, did a PUD on it, changed it from agricultural to industrial commercial, and built a $1.5 million shop and a $300,000 industrial truck wash. When it all finished and CO'd, um, certificate of occupancy, 
I'd spent a few million bucks. And at that point, we were operating 17 pieces of equipment, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It never stopped. The rates were up to $75 an hour for me. And we were just cranking away. Uh, it was pretty common to the, well, we were doing 6 million a year and I was 28 years old. So I had 72 employees. They all worked their asses off. That's actually the guy's house I'm sitting in right now on the Western Slope of Colorado. Is a former employee of mine. He's my shop manager. We're still good buddies to this day. But uh, we worked hard. We worked very hard. It was a great time in my life. I, I wouldn't want to do it again. Um, but at this age in particular, because I had all the energy in the world, it's a young man's game to do what we did. But it was amazing <clears throat> to see myself and the transitions that happened uh, during that time. So Let's talk about the biggest thing that happened in that time. I told you I kept drinking and drinking and drinking. One night, uh, I went to a party in town uh, with some local people, and uh, I lost a quarters game. And we were dropping uh, shots of Jack Daniels into a cereal bowl, and that fucker was almost full, and I missed. So uh, there's got to be 100 people at this party. I'm like, I can't. But I drank bourbon. I didn't drink Jack Daniels, right? And I was already drunk on bourbon. So I chugged this entire thing of Jack Daniels. I remember blacking out about five to eight minutes later on the couch. My buddies woke me up, took me to a hotel room with them, let me sleep on the floor. And they woke me up and they're like, hey, man, night shift's coming in. You got to get the fuck out of here. Like, you got to go back to your truck or something. So they dropped me off of my truck and my phone rang. My phone used to ring 227 times a day was the average. It never quit ringing 24 hours a day. And I had to answer every single phone call. So because of robot mode, I just drunk as shit. I just picked the phone up and answered it. <laughs> hey Sean's WC rig 379 we need water I still remember the call I said yes sir I literally started my truck put it in gear and blacked out and I woke up <clears throat> a little bit later and all I could hear was this rotational grinding noise which was my fender shoved all the way down into my tire and what I figured out is I'll fast forward I caused about a quarter million dollars in damage between vehicles and buildings um, I'd started my very powerful diesel truck and uh basically laid on the fucking gas and just smashed into buildings and cars and fucked everything up. When I came back, I've been out for about 20, 25 seconds. When I came back to, I realized what was going on, scared as fuck, drunker and shit. <clears throat> I drove straight to my house. I just took off. I'm like, I'm out of here. So I went to my house and uh, about six o'clock, my phone rang and it was Toby. And he said, uh, Hey, Sean, where are you at right now? And I lied. I never lie. I was scared. I lied. And I said, uh, I'm in Meeker right now, which would be like a two hour drive. And I said, I'm all the way at the back of uh, here at Peon. So I'm a few hours out. And he goes, as soon as you come to town, call me. Said, yes, sir. <clears throat> so I hid my truck back behind my barn so no one could see it and went in the house and tried to start just drinking as much water as I could and tried to sleep. <clears throat> Couldn't sleep because I was just so fucking nervous about this conversation I was getting ready to have. Finally, about noon, I called Toby and said, hey, I'm just rolling into the valley. Where would you like to meet? And he said, uh, I don't think you need to go meet me. And I said, no, sir. And he says, no, Chief High Garrick needs to speak with you, which is our local chief of police. And I said, yes, sir, I'll be able to speak with you afterwards. He hung the phone up. I was like, uh-oh. So I walked to the police station, and they I drove there, actually. I drove myself there and uh, walked in. 
I walked into the secretary and she says, Hey, Sean, this, remember this is a small town. She says, Hey, Sean, uh, chief's in the back waiting for you. So I walked back into their little break room, evidence room area, whatever you call this, like a, they had a bunch of whiteboards back there and there was all displayed out with pictures and dry erase markers of everything I had done. And uh, God damn, you know, I gotta be honest. I was so humiliated. Like I had finally reached this peak in my life where I was like, you know, somebody important in the community. I was making good money. I had, I think at that point, I think I had like eight employees working for me or something, you know, I was feeling good about paying them paychecks and keeping their families happy and shit. And I'm like, man, I just fucked this up horribly. So I walked in and sat down he's like, okay, so why don't you tell me what happened? And so I told him the whole story. I didn't lie at all. And uh, I said, you know, I, I'm obviously not responsible enough with alcohol to drink. I'm, I'm done drinking. Like I've never drank another drop of alcohol in my life. I'm finished. He said, I think that's probably a good idea, Sean. He said, uh, but right now I'm issuing you a ticket for 24 points on your license and uh, you can't drive out of here. I need you to take a breathalyzer. And I said, I'm not going to jail. And he goes, I didn't see you do it. And I was like, oh my God. Okay. Small town America. Okay. And I said, so what do we do? He goes, you're going to take a breathalyzer real quick. And I did. And I blew a uh, 0.21 at noon the next day. And uh, I said, well, I guess I'm not driving out of here. So I called an employee and he came over and picked me up and I went and saw Toby. And that was kind of a personal conversation, but At the end of it, I was told to go home and dry out for two weeks. And so I did. I went home and I was like, I got, I'm not responsible enough to drink alcohol. I'm fucking done with it. I literally poured my booze down the drain, did the whole like thing you see on TV, you know, like down the drain, you fucking demon. I did all that shit. And I had just started dating this, this little hippie chick from Southern Alabama. I'll never fucking forget it. I met her at a hunting lodge. She was like a caregiver up there. And she had come down and I hadn't told her what happened yet. And she came down and she saw me. She's like, what the fuck happened to you? You look like shit. And so I told her the whole story and she's like, oh, fuck. I'm like, yeah, this is not good. Like, I don't know if I'm at a job in two weeks. Like, this may not be good. And she says, you know what you should do? You should smoke a bowl. I was like, what? So you fucking kidding me? I said, I just thought about losing my goddamn livelihood for getting drunk. And you think I should smoke a fucking bowl of weed? Yeah, great idea, Einstein. And she's very hippie. She's like, whoa, 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 I didn't ask for that. I'm just giving you a solution for your problem. You can do what the fuck you want to do with it. And I was like, whoa, she's never talked to me like that. I was like, okay, well, fine. I said, all right, I got two weeks off. Why not? Grab a bowl. So she grabbed a bowl. And I literally edged that fucker. I mean, I barely edged that bowl. And I was instantly my tension in my shoulder was gone and my stomach unlocked this 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 fucking stress that was just tearing me up inside for this horrible mistake i'd made was eating me up on the inside and it just unlocked it 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 just unlocked it It, i was like whoa i don't ever remember weed being like this really like hmm okay went and saw the judge and they make that quick in those small towns you make in front of the judge pretty quick uh, went and saw the judge, and uh, this is an amazing story, but I had a pretty good attorney, and she met with the whoever, the DA or whoever the fuck it was before the case started, and uh, the judge asked me to get up, present the whole case, tell him everything that happened. I told him everything that happened, and at the end of it, I just said, sir, I'm just not responsible enough to be able to consume alcohol in my life, and I've given up alcohol, and I'm done with alcohol, and I'll never drink alcohol again in my life, and I haven't. I'm 17 years sober on booze, and he says, you know what? I believe you. 
And all of a sudden this energy wave came across me like this super positive, like blue wave came across me. Like what the fuck? I said, yes, sir. He goes, yeah, I believe you. I believe you to the point that you're going to pay some court fees today. You're going to get right with everybody. You damage their vehicles and their buildings. And um, as long as I don't catch you drinking anytime in the next three years, this will all go away. He said, but I catch you drinking. You're going to fucking prison. And I said, deal, done. I already won this bet, no problem. Paid my attorney, paid court fees, walked out. And she says, I don't know what the fuck you just did, but something tricked, something happened when you told that story to him. And I said, well, good, I was honest. She said, yes, you were. You were very honest, very open about it. So I called Toby and told him what happened. And he still wanted me to stay home for the two weeks. And so it took me like a week to smoke a whole bowl of weed. I just, I was sleeping. I was trying to repair myself a lot. I'd been working really, 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 really hard. So first day back to work, I'm not going to smoke. I'm going to be totally stone cold sober. And that lasted about like two weeks. And I'm like, I'm going to try smoking a bowl when I go into work. Cause every night I was going home, I was smoking a little bit of weed and it felt great. You know, it's on my eight hours off instead of drinking, I'd just smoke a bowl, go right to bed. So I went into work one morning and started work. I'd be there about 4 30, 4 40 in the morning. And I started work stoned to the bone showered. Nobody could smell it. Nothing. And everything was going smooth. I was like, what, what the hell? This is, this is weird. We were doing about, I don't know, a hundred a month at that point, maybe about 25 or something in business a month. And I was like, this is, this is going pretty smooth. So I went down, I bought that land. I built this building. I did everything I was supposed to do. And I blink and I'm 29 years old. I own this incredible shop. I have this incredible equity built up 17 trucks doing 6 million a year in business. And life is like spectacular. Like I'm like, holy shit, this weed is amazing. Like this shit makes me think in a completely different way. It's like, you know, I wonder how come sometimes I go to sleep and sometimes I get awake. I wonder why that is. And in those days, you didn't go on Google and look that shit up. You'd be afraid the DEA kick your fucking door in. So you just didn't look that shit up. So I just went to the next level. I got a hold of my HR director for my company, personal friend. And I said, hey, doc, give me a, a ticket to the High Times Cannabis Cup, give me a plane ticket, get me everything. And so 2007, I lied to my family and told them I was working like I do every year. And I lied to my employees and told them I was going home to my family. And I jumped on a plane and flew to Amsterdam and went to the High Times Cannabis Cup solo. Met all sorts of amazing people. Craziest story. I got to go to the red light district, right? Like I'm not going to, I can tell you, put me on a lie detector. I didn't bang any horrors, but I had to go see it. Right? I wanted to go see what this was all about. I heard about it my whole life. I had to go see it. So I go smoke at the church, a cool, cool little coffee shop over there. Side note on that. In those days, I couldn't even roll a joint. This is like 2007. I couldn't even roll a joint. So I asked them for a bong and they said, we don't have a bong. And so they handed me papers and a crutch and said, here you go. And I fumble, fuck this thing around and shit was spilling everywhere. Proceed to the good part of the story. These two girls behind the counter were beautiful. This girl walks over to my table and she starts laughing. And I said, listen, I don't need you to fucking laugh at me. If you want to come over here, help me out, sit down. And she sat down and proceeded to seductively roll this joint. Like I've never seen anybody. I'll never forget that. I believe shit plays like a video in my head. I remember she looks like, I remember the color clothes, everything. She rolls this joint and proceeds to lick this joint and stick this joint and light it, puff it, get it going, turn around, stick it right in my mouth. And she's like, welcome to Amsterdam. I was like, holy shit, this place is great. So I smoked a couple of J's there with her. 
And then I start walking down this red light district. This is nothing to do with cannabis, but it's a fucking hilarious story. So I have no clue how this works at all. I'm just following all the rest of the tourists. If you've never been to Amsterdam back in the day, there's literally families walking through the red light district. It's pretty unique to see. I thought it was pretty cool that there's every shape and size of person checking out this tourist destination. So I'm walking along and I'm walking along and I look down and there's this beautiful black woman in the basement. Like they have a basement look garden level, if you will. And then they have like the first level. Second. I mean, there's places I'm not kidding you. It's six stories high of horrors and six wide and they're dancing in front of a window and you like go up and push the button and they it's it's pretty cool how they do it okay anyhow the chick sees me look at her and she starts blowing me a kiss and i'm just like holy shit she is so fucking beautiful amazing body the just like everything i like on this chick right she starts rubbing her boobs and everything i'm like that is fucking mm, this is real and this is like 30 seconds in we'll say maybe 40 seconds in this happens right so I'm just standing there looking like, wow, you know, like, you know, I don't know nah, wow, this is okay. This is, and then all of a sudden this huge smile comes across her face. I mean, a fucking smile. And I'm like, what the fuck is she so happy about? And she lifts up her purple skirt and there is a fucking baby arm hanging right there. Now me, little country boy from Indiana, had never seen a transvestite in my fucking life. I had no clue what the hell was going on. This was my introduction to the red light district of Amsterdam. Stone to the bone, transvestite. I jumped probably two feet in the air and he or she, I'm not sure in the transition where that was, laughed hysterically, doubling over, holding their stomach, just thought that was the funniest shit in the entire world. So that was my introduction. And I can go into stories and stories and stories about that kind of shit that happens over there and people hitting on you and crazy shit. But here's a good story. I'm in Amsterdam. I walk, I see the magic mushroom sign. I'm like, oh yeah, tonight's the night for boomers, for sure. So I walk downstairs, this little cool place, super cool chick down there talking me through it. You want the Thai goals? Well, what's your experience with mushrooms? I'm like, I've done them like, you know, 10 times in my life. So no expert, but I can handle them. And she's like, okay, so let's do these. And it's something from Colombia. I'm like, all right, sounds great. Whatever, you know, and she gives them to me. She's like, what you want to do is only eat, like you do with edibles. You only eat half of it and then eat half of it. Yes, ma'am. No, they're fresh. Their mushrooms are fresh. They're not dried out. So it tastes very earthy but it didn't fuck with my stomach the way normal dried out mushrooms do. So anyhow, she tells me this whole spiel. Basically it goes in one ear, right out the other. I walk up to the top of the steps. There's a trash can right there. I open this whole thing up, shove all of them in my fucking mouth and drop the uh, trash in the receptacle and keep walking. Now I'm staying about 25 minutes outside of Amsterdam on a train because I want some cultural experiences that are not part of Amsterdam. I want to meet real people. So, um, I get down, I'm wandering around, been tripping for like three or four hours. And I'm like, all right, I'm gonna go catch the train back to my little town, wander around that town. I go down, fucking train stopped. It was like one or one thirty in the morning. Train was done. It don't run till five something in the morning again. I'm like, what? It doesn't run till five in the morning? Nope, not till five in the morning. Fuck. Okay, so here I am tripping my nuts off. I have no clue when this shit's gonna end. And I'm in a foreign fucking city. I have no clue where I'm at. Hell yeah, let's make some lemonade of these lemons. Let's go. I just spun on a heel, turned around and walked right back to a main, I'm drawing a blank on it. I wish a buddy was here to give me the reference because he knows what it is. It's a main square there. And I walk back this main square and I just start walking down these alleys. Now, you understand when you're in Amsterdam, alleys are as wide as my shoulders. I'm a big dude, but like, you know, fucking alleys should be 6, 8, 10, 12, 14 feet wide. No, 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 no. These alleys are like 
two and a half, three feet wide. So as you come across somebody, you're bumping chest or butts as you go by them. It's really weird. It's a very intimate experience as you're passing a lot of energy transfer and shit. Anyhow, here's this dude. I don't know where he was from. Uh, probably say off the top of my head, I would say Afghanistan, but I, I could be wrong. It could have been Pakistani. I didn't get into it with him. Anyhow, this dude walks by me and he says, blast something about you want some heroin. I was like, no, I'm cool, dude. And he goes, oh, an American. I said, and I lied to everybody. I had Canadian maple leaf saw me and everything. I was like, no, 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 I'm Canadian. I'll fast forward. I ended up sitting and talking with this guy about his lifestyle and what he does in Amsterdam of basically selling hardcore drugs on the streets all night long. Fucking fascinating the shit this dude had to tell me. Off the fucking charts fascinating. The people he meets and what he does. It was just intriguing. So it sparked this <clears throat> thing in my head of like this night culture and what people are doing in a night culture. We got, I'm tripping my balls off, right? Next morning, I get on the train, go back, no big deal. I fly home, bring some genetics. Uh, while I was over there, I met Ariane with Greenhouse uh, Seeds. In those days, you could literally just go sit down at his bar and he'd be wandering around. And he'd come sit and talk to you. That can't really happen nowadays. He's not accessible like that. I met Soma with Soma Seeds. I met Milo with Big Buddha Seeds. Uh, I met all of, of all these amazing people. I, I didn't get Adam with TH Seeds. I went into his shop, but I didn't get to meet him on that trip. And these guys were just, I was buying genetics. They were giving me genetics because I told them, I was like, I don't know how, why do I go to sleep and why do I wake up? Like, what is it? And they're like, you've never heard of indica or sativa? I'm like, no, I don't know what the fuck you're talking about. I have no idea. And they're like, okay, indica, sativa, Afghani, ruderalis. And I'm like, Afghani part I got, what else? And they start to explain how these have sedal effects and then your head effect and ruderalis is an auto flower and like, you really just need to buy this book, this Jorge Cervantes Grow Bible. And I'm like, oh, shit, no problem. Let's get it. So I bought that. I bought a shitload of genetics. I loaded it all into a wine box, shipped it back to Colorado because I didn't want to fly with it through customs and shipped it all back to Colorado. And it showed up, I don't know, a month later, something like that. <clears throat> At this time, I've been subscribing to High Times Magazine for I can't tell you how long. I had it go into a private PO and all sorts of shit. And I just was fascinated by reading about this plant. I couldn't get enough of it. I love the taste. I love the terpenes. I loved it, everything about it. But now I wanted to grow it. I wanted to grow this plant. So I went and uh, I flew up to Vancouver, British Columbia. I kept seeing this BC Northern Lights bloom box in high times. And I'm big on personal meetings. I don't like emails and shit. <clears throat> so uh, I just called these guys. And I'm like, hey, if I come up to BC, will you give me a tour of your facility and show me what's up? I'll have cash with me to be able to buy the machine. And they're like, fuck yeah, come up. So I go up there, <clears throat> walk into this place in Surrey, which is kind of, it's a suburb of Vancouver, if you will, kind of a seedy part of town. And I go in and I, I meet the guys. Fuck, they give me two O's of weed. I'm like, here's the machine. Fuck yeah, I'll buy it. I pay them for everything. And I'm like, this is great. I'm like, I'm staying in Vancouver. I'm grabbing some genetics. I'm going up north to see a homie from snowmobiling and I'm going to bounce. And they're like, yeah, sounds great. Cool, no problem. So, at this point, I'm in Vancouver that night. I bought the machine. It's heading back. And uh, what's my ex-wife is with me at the time. And uh, we're just dating at that time. And I'm like, hey, uh, getting back to this nightlife thing. I'm like, hey, uh, I'm going to go down and hit Hastings Street real quick. I'm going to be back in a couple hours. And she's like, what the fuck is Hastings Street? And I'm like, it's an open air drug market. And she's like, what? And I'm like, uh, people shoot heroin and cops are standing right next to them. Like, it's nothing like you've ever seen in your life. It's insane. She's like, what do you want to go for? I said, because it's the most primal I've ever seen a human being be in my life. And I'm, I think it's intriguing. I want, I want to see it. 
He's like, whatever, you're on your own. Good luck. I ain't going to see that shit. I'm like, all right, cool. So I bundle myself all up, just completely cover up. It's cold. So I don't want anybody seeing who I am. Anyway, I'm a big dude. I don't want to intimidate anybody. I just stay covered up. I'm just walking around doing my thing, getting panhandlers around me, seeing people shooting up, seeing people fucking behind dumpsters, all sorts of crazy shit that happens on Hasty Street. And I was like, all right, cool. I've been out here for like an hour. I'm cold. I'm going to go walk back to my hotel. And as I'm walking back, I look down this fucking alley and there's this film crew filming this bitch. And she's sitting there tying herself off. And I'm like, what the fuck? They're going to film this bitch shooting up right here. And she does. Shoots up, unstraps, nods out right there. Like right there. Nods the fuck out. I'm like, what the fuck is going on here? Like, this is so raw. This is so like, I'm up here for cannabis. And these people are fucking doing documentaries on people shooting up fucking heroin. Like, this addiction thing goes to so many different levels and understand I was an alcoholic and switched to cannabis. So addiction fascinates me. It's, it's just something that intrigues me as a study. Thank God she popped back. She took a breath. She came back. I was like, all right, that's enough for tonight. Mental overload. Went home. I went back to the hotel, finished out my trip and, and came back to uh, the States and started growing this BC Northern Lights Bloom Box. And I was growing as fast and hard as I could. And I couldn't keep up with how much I wanted to smoke and my buddy that I was supplying, just one friend, Coob. And uh, we just, I just, we couldn't grow enough weed. We, we were just, as soon as we'd grow it, the shit would be smoked in like a week, it'll be gone. So I told him, I was like, man, I'm going to take some shipping containers. And I'm going to, this at this time, I live uh, in the middle of a 2,200 acre ranch in Western Colorado. Uh, we all have 40 acre tracks, but there's only nine people that live up there. Some people have bought 10, 20 of those tracks or whatever, but it's, it's very sparsely community, a very sparsely populated 2,200 acre private ranch that was purchased by a developer and chopped up. And uh, I bought a parcel out there and built a log home and uh, it's a beautiful spot, raised bed, organic gardens, big shop. We used to build off-road semis and shit in there. Well, I take and bury the shipping container right underneath the ground and I build it the same way this BC Northern Lights Bloom Box is built. And I start growing in it. And I'll never forget walking out there one day. This is a funny story about the Connexes. <clears throat> I just remember thinking like, wow. And all the pictures I've seen, I don't ever remember cannabis having beautiful webbing all over it. Like, looks like, <clears throat> you know, like a spider just covered it in webs. I don't understand what that is get a little bit closer and I'm like, what are those millions of bugs moving around on my buds in there? What the fuck are those? And I go pull out my little book and it's like, Oh, those spider mites. That's what those things are. Holy shit. So when I say I've made like every bad mistake you can make in cultivation, I mean, I've made every single bad mistake you can make. I put in the one shipping container. It didn't do good enough. We now have a third party consuming the cannabis and we just couldn't grow enough weed and it was just out of control. So I said, fuck this. I put two more underneath the ground. And at this point, I had 24,000 watts of HPS at a bedroom, clone room, cure room, process room, uh, nutrient room. I had this thing set up. It's still set up to this day. The house is for sale if anybody wants to buy it. Uh, it was dope. It was dope as shit. And next thing you know, I'm pulling 18 peas a month. I tried cultivating every way you could cultivate. I use start out like everybody does GH three part, man, just banging away on GH three part, figured out powdery mildew, figured out russets, thrips, aphids, you name it. We figured it out newt lock pHs. I, I figured it all out by fucking it all up. Then as I'm figuring this stuff out, uh, April of 2008 comes along and I have a good, good friend call me 
remember I'm running this oil field company, right? I've quit drinking. I'm smoking weed now. Uh, shit. I mean, I'm, I've, I've met what's going to be my future wife now, ex-wife, but uh, life's going good, right? Like everything's going good. And I get this phone call um, in March of that year. I'm sorry. from this friend of mine, Bub, B-U-B. And he says, hey, Sean, Sean, uh, how come you didn't sell your oil field company? And I said, Bub, what the fuck are you talking about? How, how do you know anyone was looking at my oil field company? And he says, I'm over here banging this chick in Oklahoma that deals with every single oil field transaction in the United States. And she told me, because she's heard me talk about you, that your name came across and you were going to cash out. Why would you not sell? And I said, oh, shit, Bub. I said, you know why? I said, I created this baby from nothing. Nothing. I said, literally... I said, you may not know it, but that three-story house I remodeled for my girlfriend, when we broke up, when I broke up with her and I was like, this is it, we're done, she booted me the fuck out. I was homeless, living in my truck, like with my basset down, a fucking drunk, you know, just not really in a good spot in life. And I said, now this company's doing six million a year. I got 72 employees. I'm picking up a contract out of Houston next year. It's going to need 467 employees. I was like, dude, I'm going to go to fucking like 15 million next year. I was like, I, I, everything's good. He, he says, hey, Sean, do, do you know why I have two Royals Royces? I said, no, Bub, I've always wanted to understand Bub doesn't even have a high school education. I think he dropped out in the eighth grade to go work in the oil field. But he was a very, very wealthy man. Very, very wealthy man. He had started his own company and done very well for himself. And he says, do you know why I drive two Royals Royces? I said, Bub, no, I have absolutely no idea. I've always kind of wondered why you have two of them. And he said, because I've always listened to people smarter than me. And he hung the fucking phone up. I'm sitting in my shop, my dream shop. I have this office up on the second story, little tiny, smallest office in the whole shop. I turn and I look out and I see my shop manager, which I'm sitting in his house now. And I see these great employees and I got all the tools I ever wanted. And I've got this kick ass shop. It's like 10,000 square foot shop. This place is fucking big. I've got the air compressor. I've got everything I've ever wanted in a business to be able to operate. And now this guy gets me on the phone and tells me I should sell all this shit. And I remember looking out there and I remember looking at the numbers. I stopped and I thought, you know, pride has never paid a single fucking bill for me. Hard work, strategy, forward thinking has always paid my bills. You know what? It, it might be nice to take a break right now. It, it might be a good time to just take a break in life. I've been working fucking hard, guys. Like I've been working hard. I, I wasn't a drunk anymore, but I was working hard. So I called up the guys that were trying to buy my company. I said, I'll sell it. And they're like, what? I said, you're not getting the name, but I'll sell you all the assets. Like, we don't want your building. I was like, fuck, I need to get rid of this building. I had a huge loan on this motherfucker. I was like, I got to get rid of this building. So I told him, I was like, all right, you can buy all my equipment, buy parts, employees, contracts, whatever. You can take it all. So they came in, bought it all. And within two weeks of me making the decision to sell the company, I sold the shop to a company out of California. I won't get into the numbers, but I'll, I will say it was, it was a substantial amount of money. And I'll never forget the guy saying, Hey, Sean, will you take $50,000 off the asking price if I sign the contract today? And I said, uh, yeah, but what's the deal with 50 grand? He goes, I got to tell my dad I negotiated something off the asking price. And I was like, done. Shook his hand right there. I had an agreement in about 20 minutes to purchase it. And within an hour, I have money in escrow. 
And I was like, okay, these dudes are serious. So they came in, they scooped that shop up. We were done in 12, 14 days, done, money funded. And I was a 30-year-old retired millionaire and had nothing to do in my life but grow marijuana, snowmobile, dirt bike, spearfish, and hunt. And that's all I did. That's all the fuck I did. And I sat and honed my craft. Well, after doing this indoor thing for a while, I started getting too many pounds of weed. So I walk into a local dispensary backpacking. I'd hand them a backpack. They'd hand me several thousand dollars. I'd let them keep the backpack. I'd walk out the door. Eventually, I'd done this enough at one dispensary. The owners pulled me aside and said, hey, we'd like you to be our grower. I said, really? Oh, shit. And they're like, yeah, can we come see your grow? I said, perfect. So I built this grow. I'd spent 127 grand on it. I was pretty proud of it. So I showed them the grow. And they're like, oh, shit, this is beautiful. Yeah, let's do this. 60 days after that, I received a letter from the county that said we're no longer allowing commercial cultivation. I'm like, fuck, I just spent all this fucking money and time. And now I know, okay, fine. So I went to a municipality that did and built out a very large grow inside of an abandoned warehouse. I built a new building inside of there, physically built the entire thing out, got it all set up. I started growing in there and um, I started looking at our cost per pound. I really started digging into the numbers and we were about a thousand and fifty bucks a pound to cultivate. Place was inefficient. It just wasn't working correctly. And so I went to my business partners and I'm like, listen, um, I'm your grower. I own 33 percent of this company. Um, I think we should be looking at doing some outdoor cultivation. So this, I've been doing it at home. So I got a soil recipe that works really well for me. Costs about 300 bucks a plant. And I just grew a plant that's about nine pounds of dried bud. At that time, it was worth 24,000 bucks. And I said, guys, you're literally talking five, $600. And that's all I have in that plant. I said, we have to do this. And they said, you know, we're not really interested in doing that. We actually are looking at another building that we want to lease and we're going to put $2 million into it to make it a professional indoor grow. And at that point, we decided we need to split the sheets and they need to go their way and I need to go my way. I wish them the best of luck. And at that point, I packed up my knowledge, my every bit of information I could come up with. And I moved to Pueblo, Colorado. And the reason I moved to Pueblo was to start Yeti Farms. But the true purpose was because Pueblo was the only county that was allowing outdoor cultivation in Colorado at that time. No one else would allow it. I have this beautiful property on the Western slope of Colorado. I'd done millions and millions of dollars in business in these towns, and I couldn't convince them to open any sort of cannabis regulations. So I packed up my shit, uh, told my wife I'll be back later and moved to Pueblo and bought 55 acres of land and started Yeti Farms. We, at this point, I had been home cultivating uh, outdoor for about four years, growing gigantic plants. We were also running the indoor grow. I was running a greenhouse grow. But what we were doing at this point was completely different than everybody else. We were stripping the whole entire plant down and doing BHO extraction. And the reason we were doing it is because I got sick of smoking flour. I got to the point when I was running the grow with my business partners that I was smoking an ounce of flour a day. It was making me cough too much. I just, I, I just was stoned all day. I wanted to be baked while I was doing all my shit all day. So I had a friend of mine call me one time. You know, it was about two and a half hours from me. And uh, he says, hey, Sean, you got to come up to the house. I want to show you something. And Tom and I used to have a little bit of a history. So that usually meant something cool was going to be up there. So I went up to check out and see what he had. And we had both given up hard drugs at that point. But uh, I went up to see what he had. And 
he pulls out this fucking puck of this green silly putty looking shit and i go what's that that's bho what's fuck's bho is it butane hash oil i said hash is all i need here let's smoke this shit so i take my first ever dab in tom's garage in his beautiful motorcycle garage and uh i blow it out i cough a little bit and he goes you didn't you didn't take a knee I said, am I supposed to? Is that like part of the process? You're supposed to take a knee or what? He goes, no, no, no. Everybody I've smoked on this shit like takes a knee. Like it takes them all the way down. I said, well, let's do another one and see if it'll take me down. Let's do another one. So I smoke another one with him and it didn't. And I go, bro, you got to show me how to make this shit. Like this is amazing. So he takes me to his motorcycle trailer and walks in. There's a hundred pound in butane tank sitting there. And I'm like, what the fuck is that? He goes, that's a bomb, basically. I was like, all right, how's this work? And so this is what he showed me. He took a French press, put a bunch of ground up dried weed in. He took a fucking that butane tank and he opened that some bitch up and let live raw butane go straight into this press. Let it soak for about four or five minutes. Then he pushed that French press down, dumped the juice out into a Pyrex that was sitting in a water bath. Then he would boil that until the butane boiled off and he'd keep whipping it and whipping it and whipping it and whipping it with like a chopstick. And he's like, that's how you make it. Like, that's it, bro. That's it. He's like, yeah. And then there's this thing you're supposed to do purging, but I don't know what that is yet. And I'm like, all right, whatever. So I went home and instantly went down because of my oil field business. I had a hell of an account with air gas. So I just walked right in the local account. And I was like, I needed two 100 in pound in butane tanks. And like we sell them, but no one ever orders those. I said, well, I think I'm going to be doing a lot of them. And they're like, perfect. So I went home and melted down my first indoor crop. And came up with the terpiest, blondest shit that I'd ever seen. No one has seen anything like it before. Um, back in the day, it was getting bought from me and bumped elsewhere for 120 bucks a gram. Like it was just over the fucking top what people were paying for this shit. And so I kind of started to become synonymous with this. And I would walk in with flats of mason jars. You know, those flats you buy at the Walmart or the store or whatever. I would have two of those stacked on top of each other in a duffel bag filled to the top, every single jar with BHO and all different strains. So 24 different strains. And I walk into these parties in Denver and I'm, I'm a pretty simple dressing guy. I don't wear suits and shit. I wear jeans, boots, and a t-shirt in the summer. And in the winter, I put on something that keeps my nipples not hard. So with that, I, I'm a pretty simple dressing guy. So I walk into these parties, everybody be fucking black tie and women be looking beautiful and dudes are all dressed up pretty. And I just, it's a cannabis party. I just walk up to security guy. He'd be like, you know, I need your credentials and bullshit like that. I'd be like, I got credentials right here. I'd open that fucking bag up and I'd pop one of them jars. I'd be like, I got 23 more in here. I think these people in here might want to see this. Be, yep. And they'd let me to the door. So that's how I kind of got my foot in the door, kind of in the scene, because I'm just some mountain dude in the middle of fucking nowhere in Western Colorado. No one knows who I am. I don't do social media shit. I mean, it's just it's not my thing. There wasn't even social media at that time, really. So I had to get my name known. So I started going into these and I met a gal that owned the first cannabis lab in Colorado, in the state of in the United States, actually, Jennifer Murray. And she had tried some of my product and She's like, I got to introduce you to this guy, Giddy Up. I was like, yeah, he makes an extraction machine, right? And she's like, yeah, I want to introduce you to him. So we were at a High Times Cup, and she introduces me to him and all these other big heads, like big, big heads. And they're all dabbing my shit. And they're like, this is fucking fire, bro. Like, what is the story on this? I'm like, it's all organic cultivated. I do live soils and pots. I didn't know about beds at those times. 
and I do outdoor cultivation and they're like, you're fucking killing it. And I got, I got invited to this like elite party that night. And I remember walking into this party, like, Holy shit. I think this is the start of something. Like and I walked in and the whole room turned around. They all threw their arms in the air and they're like, yeah, he's here. You got that shit. I'm like, yeah, I got it. And they're taking pictures of it and sending pictures all over the fucking world, to all these different people. And next thing I know, I got people contracting me wanting to know how to make this shit everywhere. It got big. Like I'm jumping on planes and shit. Like it got big, big, big. And so I'm like, okay, I've got to focus like business wise on. So then that's when I was like, okay, I got to go start Yeti. I'm going to go down. I'm going to start Yeti. I'm going to take a fucking entire outdoor crop. I'm going to melt that bitch, put it in grand buckets and I'm going to sell it over the next 12 months. That's my business plan. And that's what we did for years. I started out guys, like literally it's a 55 acre field with cactus and grass and it ain't shit out there. I was the very first one there. No one was doing what I was doing. Now there's 44 cannabis and hemp farms within four miles of my farm. Everybody saw what I did and they all ran out and started doing it. A lot of them are flaming out and failing. We're still chucking along just fine. But I went and bought this lamb, started digging trenches for uh, wire so we could put in cameras, started putting fence up, started putting a greenhouse up and started cultivating. My first crop was a 500 plant count. Um, I only got 400 in that year. And we kind of sent ripples down through the uh, valley because uh, I think our average that first year was almost five dry. And everyone's like, what the fuck? How did you pull that so quick? And I'm like, it's not hard. You know, we just kind of figured some things out with some teas and a couple of things like that. And it's the soil we use. And they're like, okay, great, whatever. Uh, that was when medical was banging. So we got away from the medical. We didn't get away from it. We extended into a wreck in 15 uh, January of 14 is when Colorado legalized that you could start selling rec. And I kind of wanted to see how the market was going to go before I jumped into it. And it was going well. So uh, we jumped in at 15 and started cultivating and making extractions. And we never claimed to make the high end best in the whole world clean. We made really good fucking sun growing hash for a very economical price. And we made hundreds of thousands of grams of the ship. So what we started to see, though, as a business, and I have no partners, I have no investors, I have nobody to answer to of my farm. So the whole thing's mine. And there's good and bad parts with that. But in the cannabis industry, any advice to anybody is no business partners, no problems. That's how that shit works. Trust me. So with that being said, though, uh, we started in on that rec side and we were making these concentrates. And I'm getting my prices down. I know what everything's costing me down to the exact penny. But what happens is we're watching this flower price fluctuate up and down and up and down and up and down. But the problem is the fucking concentrate price stays exactly the same. It never changes. It actually starts to go a little lower sometimes. I'm like, y'all know those concentrates come from that flower, right? Like, or the trim off that flower. Like, what the fuck? We have to have some realities here to keep these numbers straight. And then I'll never forget it. A client that had bought a lot of concentrates from me, she calls me up and she's like, hey, Sean, you got any hash? I was like, yeah, yeah I got like, you know, 3,000 grams or whatever on the side she said cool i can pay you six bucks a gram i said what six dollars i said we were at 750 before she said yeah your competitors came in they're offering it at six and that's kind of the new number in the whole market i said for six i'll sit here and smoke every fucking gram of this myself ain't happening i ain't selling it and she's like okay that's what the whole market's going to so i made a decision 
right then I was like, we're going to change up the game. Now, based off of that was a couple other things. In 2018, I had my entire crop, outdoor crop, sold to Willie's Reserve. It was about a $4 million ticket for me. And uh, that year, the snow came in and wiped out 85% of my crop. So I had no way of making any income for the next 12 months. And we fucking struggled. It was tough. Um, it was hard. We never missed payroll. Uh, there may have been a couple of times I had to call some people and say, can I pay you next month? And then maybe even call them one more time and say, can I pay you next month again? But we paid them. And we paid everybody. And then I had this shitty general manager. I won't say her name, but a terrible general manager uh, that when she walked out the door and quit while I was on my first vacation I'd taken in three years, um, she left me with $147,000 in unknown debt. So I got to clean that shit up as well. And after a couple of these financial shortcomings, I just took a step back and I, I, I'm a businessman and I took a step back and I was like, I've pushed this fucking mule as hard as I can up the mountain to do this. I'm done getting kicked in the teeth. And I think the mule's done walking. I have to come up with a whole new way to do this shit. What I'm doing right now ain't fucking working. I got to come up with another way to do this. So in all my travels, I like gummies, like not even medicated, just fucking gummies out of the gas station. I used to eat them way too many of them. Aeropo, all these different brands. I'm a little bit of a gummy expert. So that got me into when I would go to these other States for work, I would try everybody's gummies. When I go to Canada, I did a big trip on my Harley to Alaska and back and, it was a fabulous trip. Well, Canada's all legal. Alaska's legal. So I was smoking weed, having a great time. But I'd try edibles everywhere I went. They all had a few things in common. Doesn't matter if I'm in California, Washington, Oregon, Colorado. Doesn't matter. They all have a few things in common. They taste like shit. They're sugar-coated. And they're citric acid-coated usually. Trying to cover up and mask that terrible fucking taste of cannabis. It's a shitty ingredients list that they'd use. Basically, they use fucking Jello. And mix the shit up into a gummy form by adding a little bit more jello. It's it's horrible. So I said about three years ago now, I said, we're going to make a fucking gummy. We're going to convert the office into a kitchen. We're going to kick the office people out. We're going to turn that bitch into a kitchen and I'm going to start making gummies. And my whole team's like, you're nuts. We tried vape pins in between there. Shitty supplier on the vape pins. I fucking had like. 10% failure rate on the last order. I was like, I'm done. I'm not doing vape pins anymore. Fuck these vape pins. I'm tired of the vape pins. You know what we're going to do? We're going to bite the bullet. We're making a gummy. And everyone's like, oh, Jesus, here we go. So I built out the kitchen. We built the whole fucking kitchen out. Got it all done. I bought a KitchenAid mixer and a couple molds. And I put now what's the head of my kitchen in there. And I told her, I said, uh, hey, you ever make a gummy before? And she's like, I don't even bake. I, I don't know. I said, perfect. I said, you ever hear the brand name Albanese? She's like, nope, haven't heard of them. I said, that's the best tasting gummy I've ever had. I want one that tastes better than that. She's like, oh, okay. So we developed a recipe. It took 10 months of her making 422 recipes in 10 months for me to finally agree to a gummy and say, this will work for us. We introduced that gummy last June, June 8th, we sold our very first gummy. By July 15th, we were on back order. I've been on back order ever since. Uh, bought $130,000 in equipment last month and all of it's arriving here next week, the tail of it that we need to finish everything. So we literally started out making these gummies in a one gallon KitchenAid mixer. And we looked at a steam kettle 
that jumps up to 20 liters and it's a $15,000 piece of equipment requires a shitload of energy power or uh, a uh, propane in order to heat. And if the propane, then you have to put in a hood and it gets very expensive. So I try to think outside the box. That's one of our keys to success at Yeti Farms is no partners, no investors, uh, no problem. But we're very, 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 very smart about sourcing things. Um, so we found well, what's known as a, a 20 liter reactor, which is a jacketed mixer. It's pretty much the same damn thing as a steam kettle, but it runs off of a heater unit. We bought that 20 liter unit. We put it in. And about two weeks later, we realized this won't be big enough either for the current demand. So we bought a hundred liter reactor and we just recently started mixing a hundred liters. So now we make 18,000 individual gummies at one time in that machine. And we decided we're going to pull the 20 liter machine out and put another hundred liter in. So literally uh, in a day, we'll be able to make 68,000 individual gummies in a day now. Um, so we have a packaging machine that can keep up with that. We just ordered our new packaging. It's fully custom printed. Uh, we should have it here very shortly, but with the Chinese holiday coming up, we're having some issues with that, but that's just all part of the Chinese holiday. So now what I've really done is focused very hard on the, the monetary part of this business and got away from the cool factors and got away from all that shit that makes everybody think they're cool. I just focus on making money with this company. And the way we make the money now is with the gummies. And we offer the best priced, highest dosage medical gummy in the entire state of Colorado. And I cannot make them fast enough. I literally could sell 10,000 packages a week of those things. And we're going to be able to make those shortly. So we're cranking really hard on those. It's turned into now, you can imagine people in other states end up with this product. So I am started getting some phone calls. And now this has also turned into a Delta 8 project. So I received a call. We had some, with our recipe, we uh, had some Delta 8s manufactured. I sent them off to a couple of distributor wholesalers. The first distributor wholesaler called me with the client on the phone. And the client said, I want to be your very first order. I don't want anybody to have one before me. I'll take 30,000 packages today. I said, holy shit. Okay. I'll fast forward. By the end of the next day, we'd sold a million individual pieces and 100,000 packages. It won't even be available until March. Um, we're doing a trade show in Orlando for the Champs Trade Show. We'll have the gummies down there to be able to uh, deal with uh, wholesale distributors down there as well to start doing those. We've also, I made a business decision last week that our gummies right now are THC only. And I'm kind of tired of seeing just THC CBD gummies. That seems to be the combo that everybody does. So I have a good friend of mine, Jason Martinez, that started up a, a gigantic extraction, hemp extraction facility in Denver and has resources to, he had to have named off at least 15 cannabinoids I'd never even heard of the other day. THCP, never heard of it. Uh, THCV, I have THCO, and he has access to all of these now that are all hemp derived. So they're 100% legal. So what you're going to see in the future with Yeti, our brand of gummies is called Yummies. What you're going to see with our yummies is we're going to start incorporating a magnitude of cannabinoids into these and stop focusing so much just on the THC, trying to focus more on like appetite suppressants, uh, appetite uh, uh, to make increases, uh, everything from joints to mental stress. There's all these cannabinoids that have been identified and we have studies out of Israel to back up what their side effects are. 
So we're going to start bringing in these cannabinoids and be able to offer them again at a, the best rate in the state for the best high, really trying to focus on what the client needs. After we introduce these 100 milligram pieces, 10 per bag, 1000 milligram medical gummies. So it's a one gram of pure THC in every single package. After we introduced those, my email and my messages started flooding with people thanking me for making a potent product that actually works and tastes good. The key to our gummy is you can't taste any cannabis in it whatsoever. We have no citric acid coating. We have no sugar coating. We use the highest level of, <clears throat> of ingredients we can possibly use. No artificial colorings and no artificial flavorings. Our gummy is actually translucent. You can see straight through it. Uh, we offer amazing flavors. We're starting to hone our flavors into what the customers like. Uh, our newest one is horchata. We have a grape. Uh, we're doing Saturday morning pancake breakfast, which literally tastes like a stack of buttery syrupy pancakes on Saturday morning, sitting in the kitchen. I swear to God, it tastes just like it. They're over the top. Amazing peanut butter. Oh my God. It tastes like captain crunch cereal in peanut butter cereal in a gummy. It is over the fucking top. And the thing is, again, you can't taste any of the cannabis zero. And, and you're sitting there, you eat a hundred milligrammer. And if you're not used to that and you're, you're going to be sitting there in about 15, 20 minutes, you're going to wonder what the hell happened to you. Uh, they work, they work extremely, extremely well. So little did I know my path in the cannabis industry would lead me to producing a brand for the gummy. And as we see this approaching, I've now hired an amazing attorney, uh, Craig Miles out of Fort Collins. And Craig is, uh, I just actually signed and notarized my application for my first ever U.S. patent. So we're doing a provisional production patent for yummies. And we, we need that patent in place in order to be able to start doing licensing agreements with companies throughout states. I'll be in Oklahoma uh, the second week of February, and I'm meeting with three different companies that are all interested in manufacturing our gummy, our yummy in that state for a licensing agreement. So we now have a trademark that we're working on. We have a patent that is almost complete and it will go in. It takes a while to get the patent done, but the application is almost complete. And we have a licensing agreement that we'll be doing state to state to state. To boot on top of that, we'll now have the non-THC, non-Delta-9 cannabinoid profile gummies that will be available on our website that's getting built. And you'll be able to retail purchase non-Delta-9 cannabinoid gummies from us. Uh, and we'll also have them available for, for, whole, for wholesale distribution. Those will be manufactured in Pennsylvania. A good friend of mine has a very large production facility over there and can crank out about 1.2 million gummies a day for me. So uh, we plan on uh, repackaging, coming up with a, a more national packaging uh, that works for all of these and seeing where that leads. So. Uh, my friends now laugh and, and say, you know, like, what, you're going to be the gummy king now? And, you know, the more I look at it and the more I start receiving responses from clients about the way they taste and the, just the, the way it hits and how it works, like, yeah, I guess that, that's where the world has led me. I'm very much into energy. I'm very much into letting the river take you as you need to go and not fighting it. If you do, it's just going to cause resistance that will end up hurting you in the end, I promise you. If you're lucky enough to spin out into an eddy and get a break in life, enjoy it. Take the break because the river will grab you again and take you right back. And so with that, this has become not a chase for money. As I talked earlier in this, I had this quest for money as a young man that stopped when I was 30 years old and I was a millionaire and I looked at my checking account and looked out the window, but there wasn't a big fucking parade. 
thanking me and telling me how great of a job I did and patting me on the back. You know why? Because no one gave a fuck. And I put way too much into thinking that money could solve all my fucking problems. Don't get me wrong. Money's great. Especially when you have surplus money and you can give to people. That's where I'm at in my life now. I don't give a shit about money. I live in a 768 square foot house, people. I, I, at my farm, I just don't care. My truck has 263,000 miles on it. I, I don't care. It runs spectacular. When it doesn't, I fix it. It. I don't care about new trucks. I don't care about houses. I don't care about how big your fucking rims are. I don't care about what phone you have. None of that shit impresses me. Zero. Zero of that impresses me. What impresses me, my mentors in my life now, are men and women that have achieved a success level so great that they know giving everything back is what we're supposed to do. And I don't mean just money. As we go through our lives, we learn that giving back is actually the whole purpose of all this. Support and love is the only reason any of us are on this earth spinning around. And the more you can help people with that, the better off life is. So I've entered this new phase of life. Yes, I have protected IP. And yes, I have licensing agreements and things like that. But if you want to call me and say, hey, Sean, how the hell do I grow a 10-pound plant in my backyard? When I have time, I'll sit down and tell you exactly how to grow a 10-pound plant in your backyard and do anything I can to help you. Life's becoming more about motivating people through my philanthropic ways. And that doesn't mean money. I've helped people with money, but that doesn't mean what I'm here to do. I'm not here to give my money to just anybody and everybody. I'm here to give my experiences, my energy, and my support to people uh, and share that as much as I can with anybody. So I'm not your typical cannabis CEO or owner, however you want to put that. I don't wear that tag. I'm a very humble person in life. Um, I've had a lot of experiences that have put me in that position in my life, but now it's really just about seeing this new generation of entrepreneurs coming up in a cannabis industry and saying, Oh, I've already made that mistake. Don't, don't, mm -mm, I wouldn't do that. You can do it if you want. I'm just telling you, if you put your finger in shit, it's going to smell like shit. And a lot of them will be like, uh, -uh this is going to smell like a rose. Mine will smell like a rose. I'm like, okay, then I wish you the best of luck. And they come back. And they sit down at my desk and they got a piece of corn stuck under their fingernail. And I'm like, I don't think corn comes in roses, bro. So they're humble enough to come back and get the advice again and learn how to do it. Where before I would have sat back and been like, see, Eagle, I told you if you did this and you did that, this would happen. Now I don't. You came back to me. That means a lot. You're, that's very humbling for a person to come back to somebody for knowledge. So I don't do that anymore. What I say is, what can I help you with? What's the objective here? What, what do we need to get done for you? Well, I need to grow more weight. You know, my, uh, you know, I, I fucked up on this investment. I don't know how to get the money back to the people. Like I, you'd be amazed at the shit I get thrown in my lap on a daily basis, but I try to help people as much as I can with that. I haven't very fortunate to have a, a well of energy that doesn't seem to end. It doesn't have a bottom to it. And uh, it's been pulled on very hard in life, but it seems to somehow refill right back up to the static level it needs to, to be able to continue servicing. This is my platform to be able to share my talents, my energy, and my purpose in my philanthropic ways. I never thought it would be through cannabis. I never thought cannabis would be a part of my life where I'm sitting on an interview and smoking dabs of pure THC dislet. But this is the way my life has been. The river's taking me right where it needs to be and right where I'm supposed to be at this point. I don't fucking know what's going to happen tomorrow. And to be honest, I, I don't really care because it's going to happen whether I care or not. Same thing as everything that happened today. And this is all in the past. I tore the fuck out of my arm today. I four or $5,000 of damage to my fucking snow bike. 
That's okay. It's all in the past. I don't give a shit. It, it doesn't, it's okay. I have insurance for a reason. They're going to fix my snow bike. That's yeah, I got health insurance now. Fortunate enough, I bought health insurance. So we're making money now. So it's like, everything's good. So I just believe everything happens at the time it's supposed to happen to in your life. And I can tell you this from the worst thing that ever happened to me business-wise was when I got drunk and wrecked my truck and I thought I was losing everything over that. Little did I know that was the best fucking thing that ever happened to me in my entire life. And her having me lip that bowl just a little bit off the side and getting high with that little hippie girl from Alabama changed the entire fucking direction of my life. And now I'm sitting here because I let that happen. Put my arrogance to the side, put my cockiness to the side for a little bit, and I just let the world take me. I couldn't do that when I was 25, 26 years old. I have forced it to. So now looking back at that almost 18 years later, this calendar year since I've been drinking, what a simple, great, easy choice. It wasn't that fucking easy when I was in the grips of addiction that some bitch is holding on to you. Alcohol for me was an anchor to the ocean floor. That's what it was. Cannabis? nuclear powered rocket ships to universes I didn't even fucking know existed. And that son of a bitch is on full bore with a turbo boost running right now. Um, I'm very blessed to be where I'm at in my life. Nothing was ever handed to me. Uh, We all have our own stories. We all have our own rough path. Mine isn't any worse or any easier than anybody else's. It's just mine. That's all it is. The one thing that's kept me above all of this is keeping my head straight, knowing that I know I can do this. The obstacles are going to be there no matter what you do. They're there to challenge you and to see how you recover from those obstacles. People love to watch people wreck a car in NASCAR, right? You're there to watch the wreck. But what really intrigues people is the recovery from those wrecks. That's what everyone wants to see. So when you have a full life of experience of those of fuck-ups and you can share the wrecks and tell people you can avoid it this way, or if you've made the mistake, let me help you and show you how to fix it. To me, that's attaining the level of success that I never even thought was achievable. What an incredible story, my friend. That's for sure, man. For sure, it's an incredible story. And Thank you. inspiring one, for sure. Uh, for, I want to revert back to a couple of things here. The first question uh, that kind of came up in quite in chat was, "What was the markup of the van?" <laughs> that was, was the, the first thing they wanted. What was the markup of the van that was so bad that uh, it disgusted you? You know, to just say heck with this. You know, a moral check. It must have been pretty bad if you you did a moral check on you know the selling of the van. So the van deal was, um, yeah, that one's pretty close. So um, this dude showed up at the dealership and he was a manager, regional manager of Come and Go, which it's a funny name, I know, but that's what we call our grocery stores out here in Colorado. Loaf and Jug and Come and Go are the same company, and uh, his wife was a cashier there, and um, they came in. And they, I remember him telling me, they're like, you need our payment around like 250 or 300 bucks a month. And I was like, okay, cool. Let's go look. So I took him out a lot and I showed him everything around everything. And I saved this Warner Brothers edition minivan for last because they had two kids with them. These kids were young, you know, seven, eight years old, whatever. And I knew this van had TVs in it back. And I knew all I had to do was drive this fucker off the showroom floor with the whole family in it, let dad drive it, me sit in the back, back seat. And they would buy it. I knew it. I took him out, 
driving, and this part I'll never, ever, ever forget. The kids said, well, we can watch our own movies, each screen. I said, yeah, 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 your own DVD player, your own movie, everything. And they go, well, what about the volume? How do you get the volume? And I go, well, it plays through the car stereo. And the parents were like, no. I was like, fuck, I'm going to lose a sale. I said, or you can plug in these little earbuds, earphones, and just plug that little cable in, and it'll work. And the kids, ah, oh, great, whatever. And the dad's like, that's a great idea. I said, fuck it. Pull into Walmart here real quick. Hang on, I'll be right back. They pull into Walmart. I run in. I grab two sets of these earphones. I come out. All right, let's go. Open them up and I hand the kids. I go, okay, let's try it. And they both did something. They turned on a radio or whatever the hell fuck it was. They're just in the back seat, just going giddy as shit. They're just happy. They're so happy. And I'm like, this thing's sold. I know it is. Get him back and he wants the whatever. You know, he wants the full package. He wants all the warranty and all the bullshit. I uh, I knew what their bills were because when you get a, when you go to apply for a car, we pull your credit. And we, we want to know all your bills, your credit card, your mortgage, all that kind of shit. And uh, he needed to be at 250 or 300 a month. That's exactly what he was exactly right. He'd run his numbers right. Remember, I worked at A.G. Edwards for four years. I know numbers very well. And he should have been at 250 or 300 a month. I stepped him out of there at 800 bucks. And I knew that the dealership just fucking killed it. I knew I made a fat ass commission, like a big commission. I think I made like 1600 bucks on that car or something. But I just remember thinking, like, if anything goes wrong in these motherfuckers' lives, it's over. Like, they're going to have to, that van's getting fucking repoed or the house is going, like. And I did that because my fucking manager was just poking me, like, get him on the warranty and get him on everything, man. There's hot. This, this fucker's biting. Get it. Go, 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 go. And that's his job, right? I'm not pissed at him. That's his job. And I did it. And I just... I remember going home that night. I should have been so happy. I got like 1600 bucks. You know, that's a lot of fucking money and that's still a lot of money. And this, you know, this was whatever, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, almost now. And I just like, I almost didn't want it. I almost didn't even want the commission. Like I wanted to go give it back to him. They're like, here, here's two months of your payments, right? Like you're going to fucking need that. You just don't know it. It became a very soulless game. And um, money was important to me at that time in my life but it wasn't important enough to sell my soul. I appreciate that. I can appreciate that. You know, and it ain't worth that feeling. You know, I, I, I know what feeling you're talking about right there is I've seen that. I've had that happen. That moment happen to me in my life. And it, I went the same route. I'm the same way to this day. I know I wouldn't. I would rather you know work for free than to put somebody out. A oh, lot yeah. Of times. yeah, yeah, a lot yeah. of times. And they were they were good, hardworking people. You know, like this isn't some hedge fund operator getting fucked over by a bunch of redditors. Which, by the way, if anybody's listening to that, I think it's the greatest thing in the fucking world. That's justifiable. This isn't. This is a family working paycheck to paycheck and trying to get ahead in life. And I did nothing good to put them ahead in life. I put them on a six-year payment of 800 bucks a month. which is going to destroy their finances for six years. And uh, I still feel bad about it to this day. To be totally honest with you. Still do. What other great questions did you get? Ah, well, the next one is about your soil recipe. Do you mind sharing a little bit of that? Because obviously that sounds like that's been the key to a lot of success there. Yeah, uh, yeah. So uh, do you mind sharing? Yeah, so it's, it's, it's uh, 
I, I, I have it written down for the exact, because I've nailed this down to exact like grams you should be adding, but I'll, and I'll give you the, uh, the recipe, how I started. If you really want to call, I can help break it down, but do yourself a favor and try to figure it out. I did. It didn't take me that long. I figured it out, but, uh, it's, it's, um, any sort of grow medium, like a sunshine number, number four, or any sort of substrate like that, just a dirt with some sort of perlite or vermiculite in it is fine. I'm going to add some chicken poop. You want to add some kelp, a lot of kelp, yep, a lot of kelp. Um, you're going to add some gypsum, add some dolomite lime. You're going to add some blood meal. You're going to add some uh, bone meal. On the bone meal, I don't want you to get traditional bone meal. I want you to get fish bone meal or crab bone meal. Uh, and worm castings. And that's it. That's it. That's simple. Pretty simple recipe right Very there. Very simple sure. recipe. And when you mix this, you're going to need to get it 60 to 75 days to cool down. It's going to be hot. Like, like put a raw egg in there and take it out 15, 20 minutes later, you have a hard boiled egg. It's completely cooked the egg. It's like 175 degrees in this bowl. It is hot. Why? Because the bacteria is breaking down everything, causing decomposition, which is exactly what we want to be happening. We don't have to add anything to this. When you mix it, shoot five gallons of water over the top of it to kind of get everything started. Cover that shit with a tarp and leave it be. And just 75 days later, take it, mix it up one more time, add some. For me, I want you to add some local microorganisms. I want you to add some fungal into there. You can use mushroom compost. There's all sorts of different fungals you can get. But we want to get that, uh, if the decomposition, once we put them into the beds, we want to leave them alone. As soon as you get that mycorrhizal field starting, you don't want to fuck with anything. Uh, When you peel that up and you see all that white underneath your dirt, Put that dirt right back and leave it alone and don't touch it. Um, so that recipe in an indoor live bed with blue mat watering systems and a um, cover crop with a custom blend of vegging teas and uh, flowering teas for flour and then a, a vegging bokashi and a flowering bokashi, that recipe, that soil, you can turn indefinitely. You can keep turning. I'm talking 100 turns on soil, 200, 300, 400, 500 turns on the same soil, never turning it over. So when you start looking at me, I'm really anal about my numbers, guys. You keep hearing me talking about this. I'm getting ready to put in a greenhouse right now called Greenhouse in the Snow. I've already put the down payment on it. We're getting the engineering done. As soon as we have approval from the county, this thing's getting dropped in. We're going to put 12 of them in over the next 16 to 18 months. These, this particular greenhouse will run these live beds in them. Each greenhouse has 1,400 square foot of live beds. I'll harvest approximately, on the, on the bottom end, 87 and a half pounds of cannabis out of these every single 12 weeks. And the way we do this is with live beds that have this soil recipe and blue mat watering systems. And if you don't know what blue mat is, look them up. It's B-L-U-M-A-T. They're based out of Boulder. I've never taken a check from them. I've never gotten promotion from them, but I talk that company up every single time I talk publicly. They're an amazing, amazing company. One of the number one faults we find with employees is over underwatering or forgetting to water plants. It's fucking detrimental. Your plants need to dry out to the point that they don't get hydrophobic. The soil doesn't get hydrophobic, but that the rhizophores on those roots, those hairs are going out looking for micro elements and water. You need to get it right to that point, then water it. 
blue mat watering system does that for you. It's so simple. They cut all that bullshit out. So what I'm getting to on the numbers is my greenhouse is at 87 and a half pounds, which is only 28 grams per square foot. That's a very achievable number. We don't go off lights and shit like that. We go off per square foot because everybody could have a different light. You could have LEDs. I could have HPSs. You could have double indicabies, CMSs. Everybody's got a different light, right? So we go off square footage. If you're not producing an OZ a square foot, you need to get a hold of somebody to have them help you show you how to do that. That's a very achievable standard for the cannabis industry commercially. So in saying that, it's extremely easy to get 100 pounds a month out of these greenhouses. But at 87 and a half pounds, I don't know how you do your depreciations. In the cannabis industry, we have to depreciate over eight years. Unless my holding company buys it, then I can depreciate it in one year. But that's another story. If you have that situation, make sure your holding company is renting to your cannabis business, not leasing. For tax rate, it'll save you a shitload of money at the end of the year. Back out of that rabbit hole, $25.94 a pound to produce live bed Cannabis, trimmed, done, $25.94 a pound, excluding the $60,000 investment to put in each individual greenhouse to full turnkey. That's having someone do it for you. So when you run those numbers, if you take the 60 k off, right now in the state of Colorado, a pound of medical live soil, probably about twelve fifty to 1300 on the top end. So we'll just call it a G. Let's just call it a G to make it easy, okay? If you put 12 of these greenhouses in, you harvest on a 12-week cycle, you get four weeks of veg, eight weeks of flour. I mean, every single week you're going to harvest. Make that number 100 pounds because that's very achievable. Well, that's $140,000 a week to $100,000 a week. Every single week. Every week because you have 12 of these greenhouses and they're set up in a perpetual harvest. So by the time you get to number 12, you're coming back. As soon as you put clones into number 12 for transplant from veg, you go to number one, you're harvesting number one. By the time you get back to number 12, it's already flowered and ready to go again. This setup is what the future of cannabis is going to have to be because this is a commodity and this commodity keeps dropping and dropping and dropping and dropping and dropping. So unless you're cultivating for those numbers, you're leaving a lot on the table with your business. So my next question, I guess we go down to the, uh, like the BHO side of things. Yeah. Uh, what a crazy journey, man. You've, you've left so much room to, I mean, and, and again, if you, you're ready to go at any point, just let oh, me ahead. know because you've, you've got quite a, you've got quite a story here, brother. It's kind of easy to uh, keep it rolling here. So my next story, my next question, it's kind of a little bit about the BHO. <clears throat> I can't believe that uh, it went that far south for you. On that, is that something that you kind of may see or go back to in time? Uh, I, with recreational coming around here on you know a federal level, I can actually see things kind of spike back up. You know what I mean? In certain areas where, uh, like, say, if you're in a in particular state, Colorado, we'll say. You know, people get into that habit. Prices get beat down. Things get locked in because of the states. Uh, you're kind of stuck in that state. So, and people, you know, tend to go do feds, uh, feds. And uh, I can actually see it pick up again. If we go, things go uh, wreck on a national level, I just can't see there being enough flour right away for everything. You know, so if there's not enough flour for edibles and for flour and every different type of extracts, I could see it, you know, spiking back up. 
and if it spikes back up, would that be a market that you would, you know, dip your hand back into? So what we're going to do when we get the greenhouses up and going, the trim that's going to come off that, we're going to have uh, strain-specific greenhouses. So, like, I'll have a, you know, Skittles greenhouse. We'll have a Runt's greenhouse. We'll have a peanut butter breast greenhouse, whatever it be. And they'll stay like that for a long time. I don't plan on changing them. I like to stick with strains that we know how to grow, that the customers like, leave it at that. So um, let's just use a mimosa greenhouse, for example. So mimosa comes up, we harvest her. And we're only going to pull the top premium best heads for flower. That's it. It's, nothing else goes into the jar except for the absolute best hand trimmed. looks great. It's going to be prepackaged in the glass jars. We already have a brand name for the flower. We've already got all this figured out. But what comes off of that is inferior buds and trim, both of those. So what we're going to do is we'll jump back into and we'll do releases. So we'll say once every 12 weeks, the Mimosa greenhouse is going to drop. Once it drops, you'll know. So two weeks from now, it's going to drop. Okay, cool. We just cut the harvest down. So now we got to dry, cure it. So the flower will be out in one month from right now. The concentrates will be ready at the same exact time. We might do a combo pack where you would buy the Mimosa flower prepackaged with the concentrates also prepackaged. And take a certain percentage of that garden, take just the top off of it, and then fresh freeze every bit of it to make it into live resin. Don't fuck with rosin. Um, it's, it's just not my jam. I, there's enough people doing it. Uh, I don't need to get into it, but we would get into like a HC and HTFSC, you know, diamonds and sauce and that kind of thing uh, is what we would create is, uh, with the future profile of the. Nice, nice. You know, uh, <clears throat> so is there any particular, uh, why, why do you prefer THCA to dab? That's my uh, good question I have for you. Most extracts artists go right in for the A. Uh, what do you find so appealing for just the THCA? THCA, I don't have a problem with. Uh, the customers love it. The customers love diamonds. They just think they're fucking cool. Um, I'm big on the decarboxylated already. Um, if you ever eat edibles and you take your reclaim out of your rig and you make it out of it you know it just scalps you every time what's happened is you decarboxylated cannabinoids to a level that normally you're not going to reach so if it has to go through the decarboxylation process of dropping the a molecule off which is the acid or the water in the molecule it has to go through that process think of it like a timer right it starts this timer and goes well if it's already tac and it's already decarboxylated as well you're going to get more out of that tac molecule as far as full-on decarboxylation but my new jam is I truly like to mix THC isolate or diamonds, however you want to call it, with decarboxylated THC pure disco. Smoking the two of those together gives me a very nice steady high. But again, with the amount that I consume on a daily basis of concentrates, I had to try to keep this as healthy as I possibly can for myself. So THC is just truly what I choose to stick with. I don't even add terpenes to it now. Terpenes, again, I smoke just too much the terpenes begin to start uh, agitating my throat so uh, i'll still add it in I, I still when i go to parties or I, I, I show up full effect i've got everything i need but uh, for me personally right now it's just smoking pure thc uh, so with the, the edible side of things again man i think you oh man that's a nice little jar you have there Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. There's 
30 grams in there. Yeah, the edibles thing's really taken off. That's our new that's our new jam, which is opening up financial avenues to be able to get into the greenhouses to start that whole process and kind of revamp everything on the extraction side and flower side. So do you think that's something I know that's man, that, that all in itself takes a lot. Is that, you know, do you think you'll be able to sustain all of it? I mean, that's, that's a yeah. lot. That's a huge chunk or do you have to, would you have to bring in? So right now we operate the whole company with 11 employees. One of them is part-time. Um, and when we get the greenhouses going, I can run 12 greenhouses with three employees. Uh, that's included in the $25.95 per pound, paying each employee $50,000 a year. A two always working, one always off situation. Um, but I'm very big on people that work for me and empowering them that it's their division. They need to run it. Uh, take the kitchen, for example. They don't need to get a hold of me about ordering sugar. I don't have a fucking thing to do with ordering sugar. It's not my job. That's not anybody else's job. It's the kitchen manager's job. But when you get people to work for you, that you can build that confidence in them to make the mistakes at the level that they've never been at. It truly makes things run a whole lot smoother. So the people that work for us are very much team players and they're dedicated to what they're doing. So it helps a, it helps a lot with that. How are we going to run all this? How are we going to do all this? Well, next year we're going to 9,600 plants outdoors not hiring any more employees, we'll hire some temp to get them in the ground. We'll hire some temp to get them out of the ground. Short of that, if I keep hiring employees, that takes money out of my existing employees' pockets that have already invested greatly into me and me into them. So I'm like, well, do you want to hire someone else to come in? This is a full company decision. I don't just make these willy-nilly. Like I sit down and ask everybody, you realize we bring one more person in, they're going to eventually be on salary with us in like a year, and that's going to take the pool away from everybody else. You get it? Yeah, but we have to don't have any choice we're too busy we're working to the max okay cool let's hire somebody let's do it and we'll bring them in not everybody works out right so we have to find the right fit for the right people and we do 30-day working interviews uh, if it doesn't work you're 1099 thank you so much go down the road um i think when it's all said and done 9600 plant count running 12 greenhouses the kitchen everything that we've been doing i still don't think i'll be over 15 or 16 That's that's astonishing. <laughs> that's astonishing. You guys are some hired workers over there. That's for sure. That's no waste. No, no waste time. That's for sure. I make uh, I make so, German machine shops jealous how efficient we are. Yeah, I don't need to be there. They run everything very well. I'm the leader of the company. My job is to be in front of the company, trying to earn more money, more work, more security in the industry and in our market job is not to sit there and unmold fucking gummies. That's not, I'll do it. That's not my job. I'm losing money for the company if I'm sitting there unmolding gummies. And my employees realize that. Like, if I don't show up, someone's got to do it. We don't have any other employees. Sean's going to do it. And that takes away from him going up and do sales this did this time or flying on that flight to this. They understand the ripples that come from the whole thing. One little pebble turns into a fucking tsunami 25 miles away. And I'm looking 25 miles away ahead. Um, we put a lot of responsibility into our employees to make sure that they're dedicated to their jobs and they're paid well to do it. And there's a lot, a lot of the carrot hanging in front of them if they hit their goals. It's I'm all goal-based. I don't care if you get your whole job done in six hours working for me for the week. You're on salary, go home. Thank you. Job's done for the week. I Go home. I don't care if it took you 35 fucking minutes. Go home. 
But if you don't hit your goal, you're going to be working 12 hours a day, seven days a week until you hit your goal. You assess this goal. You agreed to it. We all know the investments have been made to be able to make this goal happen. Now you have to make it happen. That's how the whole company works in every division. I've got to give you some props there. Uh, you know, one part of your story that I really uh, took some uh, note to is uh, the note with pride there. Mm-hmm. You know, I've, I've had, I'm one of them types of people myself that I like to do everything myself, no partners. I, you know, uh, it's just less room to for blame there when things get wrong. It's hard. It's always been hard for me to let people in. So I got to give you some, uh, a little bit of credit there for, uh, setting pride aside. Pride, you said pride never made me any money. It kind of does. It kind of does in a way, because, you know, in just for an instance, you know, it'll get you so far pride got, you know, it'll get you a worth ethic and it'll take, make you want to do, uh, keep your pride, your, uh, product top notch in what you're putting forth. Yeah. That pride in your business, your pride in your product, uh, is what keeps the dream going. But you know what I found out in the end is that pride holds you back. (laughs) It's a good thing to get you started, but it can hold you back, you know, and that's what happened, you know, for me, in a few instances, a few business adventures, to be honest with you, that pride of, uh, you know, quality of the job. I didn't think I could hire other people in to, you know, uh, take the same pride I had. So ultimately, that pride held me back from moving forward, to, from doing things like you said, uh, moving forward, you know, taking pride, letting somebody take that, you know, training somebody to do what I've already done so we could move forward. And it, that's what held me back. I was <laughs> stuck in the production phase instead of, you know, necessarily being able to move on with things. And the other thing that held me back on pride was help. I'm still to this day, uh, when somebody comes up and offers some help out of the blue or blindly, I'm always, you know, curious of the intentions there. I don't know if it's my rough goes a few times in life, but, you know, something that genuine hardestness when somebody comes to me and says, hey, I want to help. It's hard for me to put my pride down and actually let somebody help, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I got to give you a lot of credit for letting that gentleman you know, actually help you out. You know, he, he honestly sounds like a very wise gentleman. And, uh, you know, sometimes we don't see them gifts coming at, you know, younger ages. Sometimes we have to go through the, 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 the stumbles and falls of life before we get it. You know, for sure. Heads off to you for, you know, knowing a good thing and letting that guy, letting him help you at that point. Sounds yeah, like a, it, was, it was a changing opportunity. Yeah, maturing through life's been a great thing. Learn, I, you know, a lot of people complain, "Oh, I'm turning an extra year older." I'm getting, oh, I'm getting old. Not me. I, I'm, I, getting older has been the best thing in my entire life. I, uh, it's more. I'm maturing as a man, as a human, as a person, and uh, I just keep getting better and better. It's, it's true, hundred percent. You know, men age better. We're like whiskey and scotch. You start to get good around that forty or fifty start to get pretty good. I think there's a lot of truth to that. 
Is there a book? I thought I seen something in chat float by about a book. Is there a book? Is there is a story in a, a book form? Uh, no, I've had a couple people approach me uh, about wanting to write a book, and uh, my answer to that has been, uh, I'm just not done writing it yet. And, and when I get there, then maybe I'll put something together. It's um, I'm a fairly humble person, so. Uh, I don't mind sharing my story at all. I, I, I can get as deep into this shit as you guys want to go. I'll, I'll bear my soul to anybody. I don't have a problem with that at all. I'm very confident in who I am as a human being. Um, but there's uh, there's just more to it. I know there is. I can feel it. I, there's, there's more to this story that uh, the book wouldn't be complete. And uh, Then I'd feel bad because people would have to buy a second book and spend more money to get. So I, that wouldn't work for me either. So I'll, uh, I'll just continue to ride this one out a little bit and... Uh, when the time's appropriate, then I'll sit down and uh, have an author pin something out for me. But thank you for the compliment from whoever said that and, and from yourself, Eagle. That's, I always take that as a great compliment. I, that, that means a lot to me. I appreciate that. Well, you know, if anybody is willing to approach you for some business advice, is that something that as well you'd be interested in Ooh. taking a few times and answering? Yeah. Because that's a lot of times, too, where growers get confused. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot of people that want to step up, but, man, stepping up ain't so easy. It can Ooh. be a confusing process. <laughs> if it was just growing cannabis and making gummies, fuck, my life would be, you know, unicorns and rainbows. It's not. It's 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 the IRS knocking on your door the first year you did a million dollars and saying you owe us seven hundred eighty-two thousand five hundred dollars in taxes and penalties. And I was like, seventy-eight percent federal tax. I've never fucking heard of such a thing. And here I am four years later, and I won't even get into the numbers of what the attorneys have cost. But your attorney costs nine hundred and fifty dollars an hour, and you're four years later. You can imagine what that bill is. So yeah, I'd yes, be more than happy to give anybody business advice. Um, you can email me. Um, usually the best way. And then what I do is I'll read whatever your question is. I read every one of my emails and I'll read through it. And then I'll just give you my phone number. If I want to talk and get into the details, we'll just set up a time. And I please do your best to respect that time and be as accurate as you can with my uh, instructions I've asked you to give and or that I've given. And, um, uh, I'll do my best to help walk you through startup all the way into this is the problem I have. And it doesn't have to just be cannabis. I've done a variety of things in my life and uh, you'd be amazed at what I can spin around in about 30 minutes. of just listening to you talk and kind of bounce some ideas around in my head. I've uh, been very fortunate to help flip a lot of people's businesses around for them and get them steered in the right direction. <clears throat> when you, as a human being, as a business owner, when you read the same exact coffee cup every single morning you don't see any changes in it when you bring someone else new in they see that coffee cup for the first time and it looks completely different to them it doesn't look like the coffee cup that says world's greatest boss there's a chip in it there's a mark over here there's an emblem on the bottom there's a stain in the bottom there's this whatever those be i i can find certain things that people will just look past look past because they're so used to seeing it on a daily basis So uh, I'm just kind of checking in here with you because, uh, you know, I very much appreciate and value everyone's time. This uh, this episode is basically, you know, the spotlight and or the introduce the introduction 
to the person behind the name on, that we see on the Instagram that we see in a lot of cannabis stories. So this is just kind of the rough, you know, the, the story of it. I don't know. I, I don't know. It's, we're plus two hours into this. And I don't want to you know, overdo my welcome here with this. And I would hope to get you back at some point. I mean, gosh, you're sitting there. You've already toughed it out. You're bleeding from the arm, the leg there. I'm sure at some point you'd like to towel off and, you know, relax a little bit. So I don't want to, you know, overstay my welcome here. So uh, would you like to press on or would you like to come back at another time and dive deeper into, like, say, the grow side of things? Maybe you can teach a little bit of uh, some of your tech to us and, uh, you know, dive a little bit into strains and stuff like that. Or you we I'd love right to. Now? Yeah, I'd love to. I think tonight we're, we're probably good. I'm going to uh, smoke a couple more dabs and I got to wrap this thing up so I don't get blood all over my buddy's bed tonight. And uh, I'm going to call it a night, but um, I would totally be down to do it again. Again, I, all the respect in the world. I'm, I'm very humble when anybody wants to call and speak it. Um, it's, you know, not normal for, to be totally honest with you. I'm in bed by nine 30 on Friday night, every night. So, so it's, uh, but I, uh, I, I respect it. I can help out your, your, your viewing audience. And hopefully, I mean, literally if one person listened to this thing the entire time and, or one thing that helped them or just you did Eagle, just me and you sit here and talk and you got something from it. This was a completely worth my investment of my time. Um, understand time's the most high oh, world. We we've had 90, so, um, 90 plus watching the whole time and they've given you nothing but props the whole time. I appreciate that so, to everyone. Yeah. That, that means a lot. I mean, I don't know where they're all from, but I'm sure it's late where they're at too. And they probably got better shit on Friday night to listen to some, bearded hippie talking about his arm hurting uh, and his crazy story of my life. But I, I appreciate and respect all of them spending their time tonight with me. And I truly mean, if I can help you out, please respect my time. I, I get tossed around a lot. So I'll, I'll get back to you as fast as I can. I promise you I will. I'm not disrespecting you by not getting to you. Um, but um, the last thing I'll really say when it comes to my advice and everything I've said tonight pertaining to advice, um, just take everything I say with a shot of tequila a little bit of salt and maybe two limes. Um, it's hard to palate sometimes when I get very blunt and talk very black and white about things. There's no room for mincing words. and It doesn't palate well with everybody. So if you decide to call and we want to talk about business advice, please understand that I'm really black and white. I, I, I want to help you as much as I can. But me telling you things sometimes are very blunt and it hurts people's feelings. And I'm not doing that to hurt anybody's feelings. I'm doing that because no one has had the balls to tell you that your idea sucks or your idea needs to be completely revamped. Um, I don't know why they wouldn't, but I will. On the other hand, if you have an amazing idea, I'm going to be your number one cheerleader and I'm going to open up my Rolodex for you to talk to anybody and everybody I know so you avoid the pitfalls that I found through business. And you can use them or you can wipe your ass with the contacts. It doesn't make a difference to me either way. You can come back and get them from me in two weeks. doesn't matter, whatever we need to do. So I'm certainly here to help anybody out. And, uh, you know, for whatever reasons, if, if you want to hear, you know, you got a good dick joke, you want to call and tell me, go ahead. I like a good dick joke here. Now. I like to tell them and share them. So uh, I'm a pretty laid back guy. If you're ever in Colorado and want to come see my farm, you're more than welcome to. Um, as much public and as much of an extrovert as I am, I'm a pretty private guy. So I like things to be scheduled. I don't like pop-ins at all. That uh, doesn't not go well with me. Um, but short of that, if we schedule anything, I'll, uh, you know, I'll open up the whole farm and show you everything I can and give you an hour of my time 
show you around and show you what we've done and kind of what we're doing. And if you have any interest in your state <clears throat> and working with us for any way, shape or form, if we can form a relationship, I'd be more than happy to help you. And if that relationship is me just giving you business advice, then I'd be more than happy to help you with that. I'm not here to get in anybody's pocket. I don't need anybody's money. Um, I'm just here to help people as much as I can. Tons of respect for that, man. It sounds like you're a man in my own heart in many, many ways. So I can respect everything you said there. One couple things that uh, I'd like to just kind of throw out there before you go. Uh, there's several uh, aspects of the show. One is the spotlight that me and you have done tonight that mm -hmm. I try to do every night. This is uh, episode 310. So there's been close to 310 people like yourself that has come to do this night after night. So if this is something that you're interested in, maybe check it out some night and, you know, get a feel for the show and, uh, you know, the chat. The other aspect of it is because it goes from like 1130 to 4:20 every night that uh, that leaves a gap at some points if the guest doesn't go and that makes it the wormhole. And if you ever, you know, happen to check out the channel and see that there is a wormhole episode on, mm -hmm. uh, that's a free-for-all for, -all for every, anybody that's past guest. And that, you know, they be, there could be anybody in the wormhole. So if you happen to tune in and see yeah. somebody on our episode, the Zoom numbers are always the same. Okay. So you can Oops, always so use that link. If I wake up at one o'clock in the morning, I can't sleep or whatever, and I pop in and see this, and you're you're in a wormhole, I can just get a hold of you and pop in. We start talking. Yeah, yeah. Just click cool. the link and pop in. Technology you want to. I love this shit. That's great. Yeah, yeah. that would be awesome. I'd be more than happy to. And I'd like to. We'll uh, we'll talk when we get off here uh, tomorrow. We can text back and forth or DM or whatever it was. I can't remember. Um, and we'll try to set something up to do something with the plant because at that point, I'll go to my farm. And I'll grab like a mom plant and I'll show everybody my cloning technique. Uh, my clones last 99% of my clones will survive every time. 99%. It's such an easy program. And 11 days they're in dirt from cut. I guarantee you in 11 days they're in dirt. We can do it as short as seven, but I always tell people 11 days. So uh, maybe we can start out with something as simple as cloning and um, transplant. Like there's a couple techniques to transplant. And if you do it the right way, it can make a difference. And then pruning is going to be something I'll probably spend I can spend an hour talking to you about how to prune one plant. Like it just goes, because I'll tell you what's going to happen and I'll pull another plant over and show you what I've done. And um, maybe an hour is an exaggeration, but I could spend a half hour talking about pruning a single plant and why we prune it in very specific ways the way we prune it. So I'd love to schedule something in the future for uh, growing to help people get some very one-on-one going on for their home grows and commercial grows if that can help them. Oh man, that would be amazing. There's one thing nice about this community, too, is that, you know, we have or we're growers from every neck of the woods, <laughs> every environment, every method. But we're not none of us stuck in any one method. You know what yeah. I'm saying? We're all still willing to learn and take advice from anybody and any, you know, so, yeah. That includes least. me. That, that, <laughs> I don't care if you've been growing for six weeks and you can share something with me that's going to make things easier please, I'll listen to what you have to say. I'm not here to debate with you about it. If it, I'll try it. If it works, great. If it doesn't, thank you for the advice. We'll move on. So I'm very, I'm very humble when it comes to all of that. I've, I've grown, I don't know, a lot of cannabis in my life now. I think I got to be over a hundred thousand pounds now. Like I thought about it the other day. I think, I, I think I've grown over a hundred thousand pounds of weed. Now. Um, 
but with that, it, I can still learn. I, I still can learn every day. So if anybody has any great advice, I'm always willing to listen to that too. So one last, one last, very last thing. I know you've already donated so much time to the show. Basically, this is the corny and the fun part of the show. What I'm asking you for is like, this is would be basically your commercial for this episode. I post them up occasionally more. I should be more up on it, but I'm only one person that I do the show. I'm a full-time gardener, but but basically, uh, what I'm looking for is like an old school radio soundbite. Basically, what I'm looking for is, hey, this is Sean from Yeti Farms, and I'm on fucking talking shit with Eagle, episode 310. You can add whatever you want to it. You can minimalize it, whatever you want. That's kind of the gist I'm looking for. Anytime you're ready, I am recording this section of it. So uh, please and thank you. Yeah, sure and it's uh it's fucking it's one more time fucking talking weed is that it fucking talking shit with eagle fucking talking shit with eagle okay i can get that here we go uh here we go this is sean honecker with yeti farms on fucking talking shit with eagle episode 310 it's worth a listen it's two and a half hours of my crazy fucking life story of everything from growing up with a dad for a cop in Indiana to hash smuggling people in my family to BHO cylinders to, well, the story goes on and on. Listen, have a great night. Perfect. Thank you very much. And tomorrow I'll send you a link to this YouTube episode and a link to the Spotify episode in case somebody just wants to listen and not have to uh, watch it on YouTube. I'll send both links to you. So in case you want to pass this along to somebody, you can. I appreciate that. I'll make sure I pass that on to my social media people so we can get that put up. Um, I'm not real big on trying to promote following my social media or anything, but when it comes to Yeti, follow it. It's not your typical cannabis social media. We have some pretty inspirational things on there and some really cool knowledge about Colorado. It's not normal, but uh, if you get a chance, follow it, and uh, we appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you very much again for, you know, donating some time and toughing it out. Not actually, thank you very much for not going to hell with that, man. I got to do something with this. So no, I'm thank pretty you committed. for toughing it out, man. When I make a commitment to any person, I, I, I or high water, I'm going to make that happen. That's just who I am as a person. I wouldn't want to leave you hanging high dry. We both are doing this. And, and I really appreciate it. And, um, thank you for the recommendations. Well, uh, thank you very much, and uh, I'm going to go ahead and wrap this up. So if you want to uh, let yourself out, and I most definitely will DM you them links, and uh, we'll talk tomorrow about setting something else up. Thanks so much, Eagle. Have yourself a good evening. You too. Bye now. Bye-bye. What an amazing night with that gentleman. Uh, You know... I do love these episodes on when I get these great stories like Sean had tonight. Uh, And what an amazing story it was. But that leaves us for the little bit of time to hang out in the wormhole. So you guys know the routine. If you guys want to hang out and join the show, please, please refill your trays, use the restroom, get something to drink. Come hang out in the rabbit hole. It used to be the rabbit hole, but it is now 
wormhole. Come hang out in the wormhole on this fine, fine Friday night. So that does end up this episode right here. If you're not going to come hang out, I completely understand. It's been a couple hours. I've already uh, taken up of your time. But if not, come hang out. For those of you who do, thank you. For those of you who don't, thank you as well. You guys know the routine. Please do something nice for somebody. Random acts of kindness do save lives. Living, breathing example of that. I'll see you guys in a few minutes. Have a good night. If you don't join me, you're gonna. I'll see you guys in a few. I am out of here.